When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, Unshaken Saints. I'm Jared Halverson, and we have arrived, finally, at our last book of Scripture in this year's New Testament study, the book of Revelation. It's been a long time in coming. In fact, it feels like a lifetime ago that we first started Matthew back in January. But having studied the four Gospels and their sequel in the book of Acts, and then all those amazing epistles from Paul and his fellow apostles, here we are at the grand finale of the New Testament, a fitting climax and conclusion of it all. Now, the book of Revelation was not the last one written, but it's the last one included because it covers the end of it all, the end of the world. Then again, it covers the beginning of it all as well. So this book, it's the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between. We will see, oh, the premortal council and the war in heaven. We will see the earth's history as well as its history in reverse, namely prophecy all the way to the Battle of Armageddon and the Second Coming of Jesus Christ and the Millennial Reign and the Celestial Kingdom. It's all here, squeezed into 22 chapters. And in our case, squeezed into just three weeks of study, which might take us a while. Uh, years ago, I taught a summer course at the Institute on the Book of Revelation, and we spent the whole summer on it. And each class period was just a chapter or two, so we could pour over every passage and take words and phrases apart and put them back together and try to make sense of the incredible symbolism on every page here. We'll get as close to that as we can in the next three weeks. And I know some of you have been looking forward to this for a long time. In some of your comments, you're like, I can hardly wait for Revelation. I love that book. Or I know I should love it or I want to love it. And please help me with that. Others have been approaching this with a little more dread, some fear and trembling, like, I've never liked this book. I've never understood it. In fact, a good friend of mine recently basically threw down the, the gauntlet and said, good luck with Revelation. I'm waiting to see what you'll do with it because I've never liked the book. I was like, oh, okay, I guess I hope I'm up to the challenge. Please pray for me and I'll pray for you and hopefully we'll get something out of this. The book of Revelation really requires revelation for us to understand it. And so I pray that the Holy Ghost will open the eyes of our understanding and allow us to peel away oh, layers and layers of meaning to be able to come to understand what it is that God is trying to convey here. Okay? It's all in the book of Revelation. Now, first thing we need to clarify, it's the title. It's not the book of Revelations, though that's often the way it's referred to. Okay? If you don't, no shame if you've made that mistake. It's a common one. But if you're looking for a book of Revelations, go to the Doctrine and Covenants. There's tons of them there. This one is singular book of Revelation. And it is a singular revelation, that's for sure. You only need one when it covers all of time. Okay. Now, in the Greek, it's called apocalypsis. That's where we get the word apocalypse. And that word means to reveal something, hence the title Revelation. To reveal in terms of to take the lid off, to uncover to unveil. And if you think about what we saw in the book of Hebrews about the veil of the temple representing the body of Jesus Christ, 
Well, to unveil something, what's beyond it? What's beyond the body of Christ? Well, how about the spirit of the Savior? How about who he is at essence? Because we're going to see some of that in the pages that lie ahead as well. This is an absolutely incredible book. Now, I'm going to be drawing upon a lot of excellent scholarship uh, from both members of the church and non-members of the church as they've tried to wrestle with the book of Revelation. This is one, there has been so much ink spilled trying to make sense of this one book of Scripture. There's no way to, to include it all. But I'm especially grateful for books like Understanding Revelation from Don and Jay Perry. Yeah, they go verse by verse and try to help unlock some things. My favorite one is from Mike Wilcox. I, I get full disclosure, that's my uncle, so I know I'm biased. But his book on Revelation is called Who Shall Be Able to Stand? And it's an attempt to help us find more personal meaning from the book of Revelation. And I think he does an incredible job in it. It's one of my favorite books on the book of Revelation. So I highly recommend it. Another book that I don't recommend so much, but it was fascinating for me, was written by a skeptic. Uh, I don't know if he believes in anything. Certainly didn't believe in the book of Revelation. But he wrote a book on its reception history called A History of the End of the World. And a reception history is a, a, a study of how books have been received throughout their history. Not how it was written, not what went into it, but what's come out of it ever since. Uh, it's called, and so that book, A History of the End of the World, written by a guy named Jonathan Kirsch, and he's pretty skeptical throughout it all, but it's an amazing compilation of how have people been reading the book of Revelation ever since it was written? How was it approached in the early church? How about throughout the Middle Ages? How did the reformers deal with this book? And then on into the current day, uh, it's, it's fascinating because this book has kept people up at night for centuries, okay? Not just us. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'll be interested to draw on some of his research to help bring the book of Revelation to life for us as well. Now, throughout its history, there have been basically three main approaches, or reactions, I should say, three main reactions to this book. One is positive, and that's the one I hope that we'll gravitate toward uh, over the next three weeks. Uh, for example, Kirsch brings up a quote from uh, Richard Emerson, who's a history professor. He called the book of Revelation the only biblical book authored by Christ. And that's an interesting take. Yes, John the, the Revelator, a.k.a. John the Beloved, a.k.a. John the Apostle, was the one who wrote this book. But it was more at the dictation of the Savior himself. God, Christ is revealing these things to John. And John is just the inspired penman. Okay? So to think of a revelation from Jesus about Jesus, this is, this is good stuff. Uh, or how about this from Austin Ferrer, who's a biblical scholar. He called Revelation the one great poem which the first Christian age produced. And if it's a poem, it is an epic poem. It is more poetry than prose in terms of its symbolism and its figurative language, its imagery, its emotion. And there's a reason behind all of that that we'll see as we go. My favorite quote, though, about a positive reaction to the book of Revelation comes from Bruce R. McConkie, who called Revelation probably the most unique of all our books of Scripture. And that's for sure. It, it stands alone. There are other books that, are, that oh, have some symbolism. Isaiah is one. Ezekiel has some, some parallels to what we see in, in Revelation. But it is one of a kind in terms of its, its totality. It's incredible the way it describes the plan of salvation. 
Now, Elder McConkie said this about Revelation, and he compares it to the book of the Gospel of John, same author, but also compares John, the, the Gospel of John, to his fellow Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is what Elder McConkie said. In my judgment, the Gospel of John ranks far ahead of those of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And he's not trying to cast shade on the, on the synoptics, okay? But if you remember when we started studying those four Gospels back in January, each one had a different approach and a different audience. And John's had the highest Christology. He's writing to church members that already know the stories of Jesus. But they need to appreciate his divinity on a deeper level. And thus the Gospel of John does so. So Elder McConkie puts him above Matthew, Mark, and Luke. At least John's record of the life of our Lord is directed to the saints, he says. It deals more fully with those things that interest people who have received the gift of the Holy Ghost and who have the hope of eternal life. So great high praise for the Gospel of John. But, Elder McConkie continues, even ahead of his Gospel account stands this wondrous work, the book of Revelation. Or at least so it seems to those who are prepared to build on the foundations of the Gospels and epistles and to go forward forever in perfecting their knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom. And that's what this book is meant to do, to perfect our knowledge of God's mysteries. It's a panoramic view of some incredible things. So if you love the Gospels, and if you love the Gospel of John in particular, I hope that you can translate some of that appreciation into the book of Revelation to embrace what John is teaching us here. Now, if those are some of the positive reactions, there's a whole slew of negative ones that Kirsch assembles. For example, it's been called everything from an insane rhapsody to the creative imagination of a schizophrenic. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was a bit of a skeptic himself, said that the book of Revelation was merely the ravings of a maniac. Or George Bernard Shaw, the playwright, called it a curious record of the visions of a drug addict. Now, that's anachronistic, definitely, but that shows you what he, his perspective was. This book has been called all kinds of things, and Kirsch himself refers to it as a biblical oddity at best, and at worst, a kind of petri dish for the breeding of dangerous religious eccentricity. And that seems to be something he cautions about throughout the rest of his book. There was a, a Scottish minister named William Barclay who said this about the book of Revelation. Either it has been abandoned by the readers of the Bible as being almost completely unintelligible, or it has become the happy hunting ground of religious eccentrics. And I'm hoping it can, that we can kind of split the middle and not be either one of those parties. But let me introduce you to two people that I would have assumed would have a higher estimation of Revelation and didn't. And that's Martin Luther and John Calvin, two of the great Protestant reformers. In Luther's case, he said he couldn't find Jesus anywhere there. And that's one big goal I have, is to make sure that we find Jesus on almost every page. But for Martin Luther, it's like, nah, he's just, he's not here. At least I don't see his gospel the way I find it in the letters of Paul. Remember when, when Luther called the epistle of James an epistle of straw, like it's not worth anything, and he relegated it to an appendix at the end of his German translation? He did the same thing with the book of Revelation. I mean, I've got to include it as part of the Christian canon, but can we kind of put it away from the rest so it doesn't contaminate the epistles of Paul? That was Luther's approach. And then Calvin, Calvin wrote a ton of scriptural commentary. In the English translation of it, it's like 22 volumes and something like 22,000 pages worth of text. And guess how much 
of that text was dedicated to the book of Revelation? None. He didn't include Revelation in his biblical commentary. It's like yeah, either he was, he was scared of it or, or not sure about it or whatever reason he gave. But it's like, nope, I'm not going to touch that one with a 10-foot pole. And that's tragic. Then again, it might reveal the third reaction. If some are positive and others are negative, many are just confused. And whether confused in a good way or confused in a frustrating one, they just don't understand this book. And can we blame them? It's one of the hardest books we have to, to, to understand. So listen to what William Barclay said, that Scottish minister. Revelation either finds a man mad or leaves him so. <laughs> either, in other words, you're either crazy to read this book or you'll be crazy by the time you're done reading it. I hope that doesn't happen to us. Or how about Jerome, the, the ancient uh, biblical translator? St. Jerome who said, Revelation has as many mysteries as it does words. And that's a lot of mysteries. But back to Bruce R. McConkie. He called it the most misunderstood of all scriptural accounts. And he's probably right. And the main reason why is because it's so symbolic. It's the approach John took in write, writing things with so many layers of meaning that need to be peeled away to get past the surface level of the symbolism. I've sometimes asked my students, what are the three most hated books of the Bible? And they shout out Isaiah right off the bat, like, yep, he's got a bad rap. Second, they realize Revelation is on the list. And then with some coaxing and hints on my part, Leviticus gets third place. And then I'll ask them, any guesses what the three most symbolic books of Scripture are in the Bible? And sure enough, Isaiah, Revelation, and Leviticus, which lets us know that we don't like symbolism, or at least we don't seem to understand it the way that we should which is sad because that seems to be the Lord's preferred teaching approach. Jesus came and taught parables and told stories, hoping we'd see the symbolism beyond the surface. The temple is Christ's classroom. And how does he teach there? Symbolically. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then a symbol is worth a thousand lessons. And he wants us to, to learn every one, line upon line, Precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. That's how symbolism works. It's a lesson that keeps on teaching. And the book of Revelation is that way. It's just difficult to understand, especially when we don't give it the time and attention it deserves. So let's give it that time and that attention. Listen to what Bruce R. McConkie said. If you have already fallen in love with John's presentation of the plan of salvation, as it is set out in the Apocalypse, you are one of the favored few in the church. Now, he just admitted there that it's a small minority that loves this book. But notice what he did, how he described it. It's John's presentation of the plan of salvation. Huh. So keep an eye out for that. We should be able to see creation, fall, atonement. We should be able to see faith and repentance. We should be able to see the, what we already know else from elsewhere in Scripture right here played out on the pages of the Apocalypse. So you who love it already, glad to have you on board. But then Elder McConkie said this, if this choice experience is yet ahead for you, so you haven't yet fallen in love with it, but now's your chance. He said, the day and hour is here to launch one of the most intriguing and rewarding studies in gospel scholarship in which any of us ever engage. And that piques my curiosity.
that gets me excited to dive into scripture. I want to fall in love with this presentation of the plan. I want to appreciate John's content, but I also want to appreciate his approach because the Lord does. In fact, before we dive in, let me show you one other place in the Book of Mormon that will help us come to appreciate the Book of Revelation a little better. This is 1 Nephi chapter 14. And it's amazing because Nephi and John are on the same, are on the same page here, literally. Now, 1 Nephi 14 is part of Nephi's visions to help him understand his father Lehi's dream. Remember Tree of Life? Great and spacious building, all of this. Well, those kinds of elements will also populate the book of Revelation. Its grand finale has the tree of life. We finally made it there. Okay, So there's already some parallels between what Lehi saw and what Nephi comes to understand with what John is revealing to us here. Okay, But notice this in 1 Nephi 14, starting in verse 18. Nephi's in the middle of being shown the great and abominable church a.k.a. the whore of all the earth, which is meant to represent the great and spacious building his father saw. And that's some imagery, this whore of all the earth particularly, that is going to be in the pages of Revelation as well. But in verse 18, it came to pass that the angel spake unto me, saying, Look, and I looked and beheld a man, and he was dressed in a white robe. And with that, we should be getting a flashback to Lehi's dream. Remember how it began? With a, a man in a white robe bidding Lehi to follow him? that eventually that journey led to the tree of life. In a similar way, who's Nephi's guide going to be through this part of his journey back to the tree of life? Well, keep reading. The angel said unto me, Behold, one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Behold, he shall see and write the remainder of these things, yea, and also many things which have been. And he shall also write concerning the end of the world. Now, this apostle of the Lamb is John. John the Revelator, John the Beloved. And what the way he's depicted here, he's going to be your guide to the tree of life. And what will we see in our final chapter of the book of Revelation? We finally reached the tree. We reversed the fall. We returned to God's presence and were able to partake fully of his love. It's what Lehi saw. It's what Nephi is, is seeing. It's what John is writing. And yet, it's interesting that the angel would say, He's going to write the remainder. Because what Nephi does in chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, is write down history to describe the fulfillment of Lehi's dream. But as he approaches the last days, the, the angel basically says, okay, pen down Nephi. I'll show you the rest, but John's going to write it, not you. He's going to write the remainder. Now keep reading in 1 Nephi 14. In verse 23, the angel says, Wherefore the things which he shall write are just and true. So there's an angelic testimony of the book of Revelation. It's just. It's true. You can bank on it. But he says in verse 25, The things which thou shalt see hereafter thou shalt not write, for the Lord God hath ordained the apostle of the Lamb of God that he should write them. So we've got an interesting division of labor here. You've been writing history up to this point of the restoration. But from then on out, I want John the Beloved, John the Revelator, to pick up the pen and continue from there. You're passing the baton to him. But what's interesting about that is the way, John, uh, the way Nephi writes compared to the way John will. And the Lord seems to want to keep things separate along those lines, that division of labor. Now, in verse 26, the angel says one last thing uh, that's really important for us to understand. 
because just like he tells Nephi, don't worry about writing that, someone else eventually will, namely this Apostle John, but he also says other people already have. There have been those who have seen all these things, the kind of the story of the end of the world, and have written it down. And they are sealed up to come forth in their purity in the own due time of the Lord. Now, from a Book of Mormon perspective, that's the sealed portion. The brother of Jared saw all things from beginning to end, and he wrote it all down. And the way Moroni described it when he read it, he said, These things are as mighty as God himself, unto the overpowering of people to read them. Man, that makes me want to get my hands on the sealed portion, right? But here's the interesting thing. In the context of 1 Nephi 14, if Nephi is told, don't write it because someone else already has, brother of Jared, and someone else eventually will, John the Revelator, then do you see the connection between the sealed portion and the book of Revelation? In some ways, the book of Revelation is like a sneak peek at the sealed portion because it describes the same time period. And I would suggest that it's deserving of similar praise overpowering imagery here, the kinds of things that John is revealing to us all. In fact, to make it crystal clear who we're talking about, verse 27, I, Nephi, heard and bear record that the name of the apostle of the Lamb was John, according to the word of the angel. He's the one that will be our guide through the last days. And the Lord seems to prefer it that way, which is ironic. Think about it along these lines. Nephi loved to quote Isaiah, right? Despite the fact that Nephi gloried in plainness, and Isaiah certainly didn't, okay? Isaiah gloried in a lot of things, but plainness was not one of them. So thank heavens we had someone on the level of Nephi helping us make sense of Isaiah. It's like, oh, that's what he was trying to say? Thank you, Nephi, for clarifying. Now, if there were another book of Scripture, I would love to have a Nephite lens on. It would be the book of Revelation. Like, couldn't you explain that one too? And yet, at the instigation of an angel, he's told, nope. There's something about the way John describes the last days that the Lord prefers over a plain description. I don't want Mr. Glory and Plainness to touch this one. I need it to remain symbolic. I need it to pique people's curiosity and leave them wrestling with these words until they start to see its application or their application in their own lives. Okay? To me, that, that's fascinating. But let me show you some of the part of the problem uh, in terms of people approaching Revelation and thinking it's supposed to do one thing when God's intent was something else. Okay? Here's a statement from Kirsch's book about the reception history of Revelation. He said, above all, the book of Revelation has always been used as a kind of code book to discover the hidden meanings behind the great events and personages of history. War and revolution, kings and conquerors, pandemic and natural disaster. And the words and phrases of Revelation, its stock figures and scenes, have been recycled and repurposed by artists and poets, preachers and propagandists, all in service of some religious or political or cultural agenda. And then he lists a bunch. The conquest of Jerusalem by medieval crusaders, the bonfire of the vanities in Florence during the Renaissance, the naming of the newly discovered Americas as the New World, and the thousand-year Reich promised by Adolf Hitler 
are all examples of the unlikely and unsettling ways that the book of Revelation has resonated through history. Even today, end-of-the-world fears and fantasies are peddled by Hollywood movie makers and best-selling novelists, hard-preaching televangelists, and presidential hopefuls. Interesting description, in a nutshell, of how the book of Revelation has been used for the last 2,000 years. Trying to map out a chronology of before the coming of Christ. And people seeing problems in their day line up with some of the things described here and assuming, yep, it's talking about this event, which means the next event is on its way. Now, there's a danger here for several reasons. And to me, the most interesting one is the one that Kirsch himself brings up. I warned you, he's a skeptic. And so as he's describing reception history, he says this as by way of his own conclusion. As a work of prophecy, of course, Revelation is wholly and self-evidently wrong. Wow, that's stark. He just called John out and said, you totally missed it. You were spectacularly in error because none of your prophecies ever come true. Somebody's reading it in the Renaissance and thinking it's right, Jesus is coming is right around the corner and then he doesn't come. So that's failed prophecy. And then someone else later sees the same thing and again, Jesus doesn't come. This actually reminds me of what we saw in the epistles of Peter. Remember that when he was like, oh yeah, in the last days people will scoff and think that Jesus is slacking and that's why he never comes. It's all the same as it's always been. Oh, he's not slacking. He's giving us time to repent. And in some ways, the book of Revelation is a call to repent that needs to re be repeated generation after generation until Jesus does eventually come, for he will. Now, let me, make sen let me try to make sense of this, and, and then we'll dive into the book of Revelation itself. Okay, we've got five incredible chapters today. Now, for us to under, let, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Years ago, I had a seminary student that was top-notch, just a real intelligent scholar of a, of a student. And he said he was studying the book of Revelation and trying to line it all up with current, current events. So he said, okay, so this was fulfilled in this event, and then this happened here, and this happened in here. And I kind of smiled and said, you know, you're not the first to do this. Uh, people have been doing this for a long, long time. My caution to you is rather than lay out some kind of chronology, the book of Revelation might have a higher purpose in mind. And it's for you to learn how to navigate your history rather than simply situated in world history. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. And let me do it with the help of two amazing scholars themselves. One is Frederick Farrar, that great Anglican priest who wrote, or Anglican minister, who wrote the book Life of Christ. He said this, Keep hold of the certainty that the object of prophecy in all ages has been moral warning infinitely more than even the vaguest chronological indication. Since to the voice of prophecy, as to the eye of God, all time is but one eternal present. Now what he means by this is, don't assume that the book of Revelation is simply meant to lay out some kind of chronology. I mean, there is one here. But to try to get it to line up with current events, that's not its real purpose. Because to God, Everything is present. 
He's not so worried about past or future. It's in the eternal now. And right now is when you're living your history. And is the book of Revelation meant to help you do so? Absolutely. As I said to this student of mine, see what the book of Revelation says to you about how you're going to navigate your day as you're pulled between good and evil, because that's what the story of Revelation is all about. It is trying to lay out a, a framework where you are being pulled in either direction and you have to make up your mind as to which side you'll follow. No man can serve two masters, but you're going to end up serving one. Who will it be? Zion or Babylon? Christ or Lucifer? The God of heaven or the God of this world? Does that apply to you right now? Regardless of current events and where we happen to be on the, the grand chronology? Absolutely. Did it apply through all these other ages of human history? Yes. Don't forget what we talked about when we discussed the second coming. That one of the reasons no man knows the day nor the hour is if it was only applicable in the literal fulfillment of the second coming, then you've just, you've limited the scripture's relevance to one single generation. And the scriptures are meant to be relevant to every generation. And so rather than making a chronology here, let's talk about moral warning as Farrar describes it. And let's paint the picture because whether or not Christ comes to you as the second coming, you're eventually going to come to him, namely your own death. And is that a moment where you better have chosen well throughout your life? You better believe it. You understand what I'm trying to explain here? I hope. As I said to my student, don't worry so much about lining up current events with ancient prophecies. Look at principles within this prophecy of how do I navigate between the tugs and, and pulls of two opposite forces. Okay? Listen to what Elder McConkie said about that. It's fascinating. Nowhere in any scripture now had among men are there such pointed and persuasive explanations as to why we must overcome the world and the attendant blessings that flow therefrom as in this work of the beloved John. Truly the teachings of this inspired work are some of the greatest incentives to personal righteousness now found in Holy Writ. And that's the point of the, of the book of Revelation trying to help persuade us to incentivize personal righteousness, the way Elder McConkie says it. In fact, this is some, one of my favorite parts of Uncle Mike's book, Who Shall Be Able to Stand? Because there's a really fascinating quote from Joseph Smith about the book of Revelation. He called it the plainest book ever God, the plainest book God ever caused to be written. And that leaves me scratching my head like, seriously? Great, now you've given me no hope at all. For you, it was crystal clear, and we're, I'm just supposed to understand it? Well, it certainly wasn't plain for me. Well, one of the great things that my Uncle Mike does in that book is to say, you know, I don't think it was the symbolism in Revelation that Joseph was referring to. Because Joseph himself had questions about the symbolism. Go read section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and it's, question, it's Q and A, verse by verse. And it's all about the book of Revelation. What did you mean by this? And what are you talking about there? And what on earth is this supposed to represent? He didn't get it until God revealed it to him. Okay? So if you're confused, you're in good company. You're in prophetic company. 
then why would Joseph say it's the plainest book ever written? The way Uncle Mike describes it is, it's the decision that Revelation presents to its readers. That is the plainest thing God ever wrote. Because the choice becomes so obvious of why I should choose light over darkness and why I should build the kingdom of God instead of going off toward the kingdoms of the world. That to me, it's like that great verse in Joel, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is nigh in the valley of decision. And this book that constantly reminds us of how nigh the day of the Lord is, we're supposed to make our choices in that kind of eternal context. As if the coming of Christ were tomorrow, or to flip around the direction of coming, as if my death were tomorrow, and I better have chosen well the kingdom of God over the kingdom of the adversary. Okay, Pay close attention for the next three weeks at how much juxtaposition there is between good and evil in the pages of the Revelation. And the choice is being presented in as plain a way as possible so that we choose righteousness instead of succumbing to iniquity. That is the great message of the book of Revelation. Okay, And so what Kirsch calls failed prophecy... I, re I refer to as the principle of perpetual relevance. You thought it was supposed to come true the first time somebody saw that it re related to their lives? Oh, no, no, no. That's privileging one generation at the expense of every other. And this is scripture. It's meant to re resonate generation after generation, century after century. And for two millennia, Christian readers have seen in the book of Revelation resonance and relevance perpetually. That's the power of Scripture. And so whether Jesus comes in my lifetime or not, the book of Revelation relates to the things that I am going through. Whether the current flavor of the day for the beast described in Revelation is someone that's currently causing problems or someone that will cause similar problems in some future day, that's, it's not the chronology that matters. It's the moral warning. It's the choice that I have in front of me. Of which way will I go? There's another great quote from Frederick Farrar from The Life of Christ that puts it this way. He was talking about the kinds of mistakes people make when they try to interpret language like this. And he said, they would never have arisen, those mistakes would never have occurred, if it had been sufficiently observed that it was a characteristic of Christ's teaching to adopt the language of picture and of emotion. In other words, the language of symbol. But to turn metaphor into fact, poetry into prose, rhetoric into logic, parable into systematic theology? No, it, that's at once fatal and absurd. And yet we saw people doing it to Jesus all the time in the New Testament. Remember when he said to Nicodemus, you have to be born again? And he took it literally. He's like, whoa, mom's not going to like that. And then the woman at the well, drink this water, my water, you'll never thirst again. She took it literally and said, whoa, well, give me some of that. I'll save me chores every day. And then the apostles come back and offer him food. And he said, oh, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And they take it literally and like, what, did you get takeout? And he's like, come on, my meat is to do the will of my father that sent me. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, he says. And the apostles think he's talking about literal bread. 
destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, raise it up again. And they thought he was literally talking about the temple, the building, rather than his body. Or we have to go down to Jerusalem and wake up Lazarus because he's asleep. And they're like, well, if he's just asleep, he'll wake up on his own. He's like, he's dead, okay? Are you not seeing the symbol here? We have to learn to learn from the Lord's symbolic approach. And so, again, I'm less concerned about the specific timetable of the second coming. I want to be ready for him whenever he comes to me or I go to him. And the book of Revelation will help me understand it. In fact, the Lord himself will help us understand Revelation. And that's good because if without his help, we wouldn't be able to make sense of it. Joseph Smith actually, and this is the last thing I'll say before we get into the book itself, Joseph Smith was giving a sermon in 1843 in Nauvoo, and his sermon was about the book of Revelation. People had been wondering about it and trying to make sense of different things, and he said, that's okay, they got it wrong. Let me clarify a few things. But among his, uh, within his clarification, he also said something really fascinating about the fact that we're not required to understand it if God has not more clearly revealed those truths elsewhere. So pay attention throughout Scripture where is the Lord making clear the kinds of things that he's teaching symbolically here? Here's just a few quotes from that great sermon. Joseph taught, To have knowledge in relation to the meaning of beasts and heads and horns and other figures made use of in the Revelation is not very essential to the elders. Now that should give us some relief. If we get puffed up by thinking that we have much knowledge, we are apt to get a contentious spirit and knowledge is necessary to do away contention. So don't be so dogmatic as to say, this is what it means and there's no other possible interpretation. No, let's approach the text with some flexibility, some, some openness, so that we don't get contentious about things. That'll drive out the Spirit in the first place. Joseph went on. He said, I make this broad declaration that where God ever gives a vision of an image or beast or figure of any kind, he always holds himself responsible to give a revelation or interpretation of the meaning thereof. Otherwise, we are not responsible or accountable for our belief in it. So don't be afraid of being damned for not knowing the meaning of a vision or figure where God has not given a revelation or interpretation on the subject. I mean, no wonder Joseph himself was turning to the Lord for interpretation in section 77. I don't understand this, but I think it's important that we do. So could you, could you give me a little help here? And the Lord does. In fact, we'll see the Lord giving us some help in Revelation chapter 1 in just a moment. Revelation 1 is almost the training wheels version of how do I deal with symbolism. And the Lord's going to give us some, help us with some baby steps. Let, let me explain a few symbols to start. And then from here on out, start wrestling with things and praying about things and searching elsewhere in Scripture because I want you to understand this, okay? One other thing Joseph said in this sermon, never meddle with the visions of beasts and subjects you do not understand. And he was saying that especially to the younger elders that just really wanted to know all the mysteries and go out and wow people. To them, Joseph said, why don't you stick with faith and repentance and baptism in the Holy Ghost? Let's stick with the simple doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Go cry nothing but repentance, okay? Let the book of Revelation take care of itself. Well, for us, we are 
I'm not trying to meddle with the visions of beasts, but I am, in, I am interested in coming to understand what they might mean. As Elder McConkie once said, are we expected to understand the book of Revelation? Certainly. Why else did the Lord reveal it? So, waving goodbye to Nephi and his plainness, we will now enter the apocalypse. We will come into the book of Revelation and pray for open eyes and an open heart to understand the kinds of things that the Lord is trying to reveal through John the Revelator. You ready for this? Revelation chapter 1 is where we start, and there are three main themes we need to look for. Number one is Jesus. Elder McConkie said, what is the chief message of the book of Revelation? There can be no question about the answer to this query. It has the same purpose as all the scriptures, though the approach is different and the setting original. The message is that Jesus is Lord of all that he descended from his father's throne to dwell among men, that he worked out the infinite and eternal atonement and has now returned in glory to that throne from whence he came, and that he will raise all men to a kindred glory and a like dominion if they will overcome the world and walk as he walked. In a nutshell, that is the message of Revelation, according to Elder McConkie. So look for Jesus. Ignore what Martin Luther said, that I couldn't find Jesus there. Well, you should have looked a little harder. And he's not hard to spot in chapter 1. If finding Jesus is our first goal in Revelation 1, finding the church of Jesus Christ is our second. And what role is the church supposed to play as it helps prepare the earth for the coming of Christ? And then thirdly, what about the leaders of the church, those prophets and apostles? What is their role in guiding the church toward its millennial mission? Okay? All of these are the things that, in, in some ways, it makes me wonder, why would John focus on that from the very beginning? What is it about life in the last days that we have to come to know Christ for who he is, his church for what it is, and its leaders, prophets and apostles, for what they're called upon to do? Okay, Keep an eye out for all of it and dive into chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Now, the JST clarifies this and calls it the revelation of John, a servant of God, which was given unto him of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Christ is still the source behind it all. We are revealing him, but really he's revealing himself to John the Revelator. And it's meant to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. How's that for prophesying? And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So that's what we're looking for here. This is the word of God. This is the testimony of Jesus. This is a prophecy of things that are to come to pass. Keep an eye out for all of these things. And because in some ways it's written for our day, or I should say our days, generation after generation after generation, even more than for John's original audience. Think of it in these terms from Ether chapter 4. And this comes from the brother of Jared. He who wrote the sealed portion that the book of Revelation gives us a sneak peek into. This is Ether 4 verse 15 and 16. Behold, when ye shall rend that veil of unbelief, which doth cause you to remain in your awful state of wickedness and hardness of heart and blindness of mind, 
Then shall the great and marvelous things which have been hid up from the foundation of the world from you, yea, when ye shall call upon the Father in my name, with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, then shall ye know that the Father hath remembered the covenant which he made unto your fathers, O house of Israel. And then listen to this. And then shall my revelations, which I have caused to be written by my servant John, be unfolded in the eyes of all the people. You get a sense there of us as an audience of this book of Revelation? As John is intending for us to see things here that perhaps others have missed beforehand? If we'll simply rend the veil of unbelief, if we can soften our hearts and open our minds to the kind of revelation that the book of Revelation conveys, we will see that God is keeping his covenant, honoring his promises with the house of Israel. It's go time, and we get to be a part of it. In verse 3, he says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. For the time is at hand. And the JST adds a little to that as well. There's a lot of Joseph Smith translation changes in this first chapter. It reads, Blessed are they who read, and they who hear, so far so good, but then this, and understand the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time of the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. It's not enough just to read or to hear. We've got to understand. The time is approaching of the coming of Christ. We don't know when. The principles of preparing for his coming apply in every generation. And so what is it that John wants us to understand here? Start in verse 4 and we'll see. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And that's Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. The JST says, now this is the testimony of John to the seven servants who are over the seven churches in Asia. So this is John's testimony. We saw that before. It's his testimony of Jesus Christ. It's his record of the word of God. But he's bearing witness of these truths and sending it to seven branches of the church scattered across the western side of modern-day Turkey. And what he says to the seven servants, so picture a branch president, picture a bishop, picture people that John, John has planted all these churches, and then as he departs, he has to designate other people, call and set apart church leaders like Paul had done through so much of his missionary work. Well, what's the message to these servants of the churches? Grace be unto you and peace. It's a lot like what Paul said in his usual salutations. John's doing something similar. But this is grace and peace from him which is, that's present tense, and which was, there's past tense, and which is to come, there's future tense. There's Christ as past, present, future, the eternal Son of the eternal Father. And He's the one that is offering you His grace and His peace, and you're going to need it. He says it's coming from the seven spirits which are before His throne. Or as the JST puts it, it's coming from Him who is and was and is to come, who hath sent forth His angel from before His throne to testify unto those who are the seven servants over the seven churches. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, or JST, therefore I, John, the faithful witness, bear record of the things which were delivered me of the angel, and from Jesus Christ, and then back to the King James, 
and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The JST actually adds additional glory a little earlier on. Unto him that loved us be glory, it says, who washed us from our sins in his own blood. What I love about John's initial opening statement, John as the faithful witness. Christ, it's a great title that could refer to Christ as well. Okay, I like the King James, but the JST uh, version of this it's John that is the faithful witness, and he is bearing a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, that's what he's trying to reveal to his readers. Do you have any idea who Jesus is? And not just is. The great I am is also the great I was and the great I will be. He's eternal. And no matter what we go through in these difficult days, Christ remains at the head of the church, guiding his people, preparing the world for his second coming, whenever that coming might be. Please hold on to this. He's the first begotten of the dead, which means he's conquered it. There's John as a witness of the resurrection. To refer to Jesus as the prince of the kings of the earth, well, if he's the prince of the king, well, isn't that what happens as the prince grows up? He becomes king. He takes the place of, those, of the prior king. And if Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth, no wonder we call him king of kings. No wonder, as is sung in Handel's Messiah, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he shall rule forever and ever. That's what we're seeing here. He's come to wash us in his blood. We saw resurrection, now we see atonement. And he did it because he loves us. Think about all that we studied last week where John spoke of love so emphatically, so repeatedly, so gratefully because of the love of Jesus Christ. That's who we need to know. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. <laughs> we're ending even as we're starting. Then he says in verse 7 and 8, Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. We get in these amens like a, a, an exclamation point at the end of a statement. Punctuating his testimony with this kind of conviction. I know who Jesus is. I know he will come. As it describes his coming here, coming with clouds, there's an interesting verse in Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 22, where he says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. So return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. I love the thought of Jesus coming with clouds. I picture in my mind these giant cotton swabs ready to blot up our blood. He washed us in his blood. Well, he washes us of our own. And coming with clouds to redeem us, to blot up our sins, to wash away our iniquities. There's another way to approach this based on the JST of that passage. It says, he cometh in the clouds. 
with ten thousands of his saints in the kingdom, clothed with the glory of his Father. And so coming not just with the clouds, but in them. And it's a cloud of witnesses, as we saw in Hebrews. A cloud of angels that are descending with him to bring forth the kingdom of God. Again from Isaiah, this time from chapter 60, verse 8. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? The picture that the heavenly hosts descending as a cloud with Christ in the midst. And to do so with ten thousands of his saints. That's the highest numbered or the highest named number in Greek. We use the word myriad to describe 10,000. And for here to be descending with the 10,000s of his saints, elsewhere in scripture it talks about an innumerable company of angels. And that's, that's who's coming with Jesus. He also describes him in these words in verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come. The Almighty. So there again is past, present, future. There is start to finish. And Jesus is here for the duration. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He can be constantly counted on. In verse 9, John then says, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John is simply setting his own context here. I'm your brother, and I'm a fellow sufferer with you, a companion in tribulation. Remember Paul's phrase about being part of the fellowship of Christ's suffering? Well, John knew what that fellowship felt like, and he wanted his fellow saints to know, I'm in this with you. I can't be with you there in these cities that I'm writing. But I'm here banished on Patmos because I will not deny the word of God or my testimony of Jesus. You've got to hold on to yours as well. That's why he's writing this message as an encouragement, as as reassurance that it's all going to be worth it in the end. As far as genre is concerned, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It's one of the greatest examples of this type of writing. And apocalyptic literature is intensely dualistic. Light versus darkness, good versus evil, Christ versus Lucifer, God and the devil. There's no middle ground. How long halt ye between two opinions, as Elijah said. You've got to pick a side. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, as Joshua said, right? No man can serve two masters, as Jesus said. It's really stark and is usually written during times of intense opposition when saints are being persecuted to the point where they're wondering, can I even hold on? And apocalyptic literature is there to to reassure them. It's worth it. Fight the good fight. Endure to the end. Jesus is coming. He'll either get here just in the nick of time, or we will die faithful and go to him. But either way, it is faithfulness that's required of us. No wonder Ezekiel writes apocalyptic literature as the Israelites are, or those of of Judah are carried captive into Babylon. No wonder Daniel writes apocalyptic literature at the same time. No wonder Nephi's visions are apocalyptic literature as his family has faced intense persecution 
and then been scattered to a land they don't yet know as promised. You understand? When times are hard, dark days, that's when we read books like this. Because it's a reassurance that God will ultimately overcome them all. It's his kingdom, after all. We're not only companions in tribulation, we're companions in the kingdom. And we have to hold out faithful until that kingdom comes. We're companions in the patience of Jesus Christ. So just be patient in him and let patience have her perfect work. That's what John will do as he's banished on Patmos because of his testimony of Jesus. I'm not going to deny that. I'd rather suffer, as I've been doing ever since I was called. Think about how we met John in the book of Acts. When he's healing and preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, and he gets imprisoned and persecuted and beaten and threatened. But nothing can close his mouth. It's interesting because, on the one hand, banishment on the Isle of Patmos? I mean, it's just off the coast of Asia Minor. You're within writing distance of the places that you're addressing the book of Revelation to. Uh, and banishment seems like a pretty light sentence compared to what your brother James got when he was killed by Herod. Or what your old companions in the quorum have had to deal with. Peter crucified upside down. Paul slain by the sword. How did you get off so easy, John? Well, there's an interesting history behind that too. Now we can read... John chapter 21 and Doctrine and Covenants section 7 and see that, of course, John couldn't be killed because Christ had promised him life to continue serving until Christ's second coming. No wonder he had oh, the second coming on the mind as he's writing Revelation. But there's also a piece of interesting history that helps corroborate what we get from section 7 and John 21. And it's a, an ancient, not, not ancient, it's an, an old book that's a classic, especially among Protestants. Back in the day, if you owned one book, it was the Bible. If you owned two books, it was the Bible and this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's some interesting reading, but it goes through those who have died, been persecuted and martyred for their testimony of Jesus. And it starts with the apostles. It describes the gruesome ways the apostles were killed, and then it provides this brief paragraph about John the Beloved. It's a fascinating one. It says this, The beloved disciple, that's John, was brother to James the Great. That's where we get James and John, the sons of Zebedee, right? The churches of Smyrna, Pergamos, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Thyatira were founded by him. And those were six of the seven branches that he's writing the Revelation to. From Ephesus, and that's the seventh one, but he didn't found the church there, so it's included in a different list. From Ephesus, he was ordered to be sent to Rome, where it is affirmed he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. Can you imagine that? That's how they intended to martyr him. Okay, Let's boil him to death in oil. That would be brutal. But, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, he escaped by miracle without injury. Domitian afterwards banished him to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Nerva, the successor of Domitian, recalled him. And then it ends with this 
cryptic last sentence. He was the only apostle who escaped a violent death. And yes, we know the reasons why. But that does put in perspective why banishment was the worst they could do to him. And yet, <laughs> banish the messenger. You can't banish the message. He's going to write the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, just like Paul did from prison. Now, the next verse, verse 10, John continues to describe his own circumstance. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me as a great voice as of a trumpet. And we are going to hear trumpet blasts repeatedly in the book of Revelation. It is a clear sound. It is a wake-up call. It is an alarm to, to, get, to rally the troops, to get us going. Now, in this case, John is in the Spirit. It's a good place to be. Uh, no matter what your outside circumstances might be, banishment, come what may, I am in the Spirit of God. And specifically, he's there on the Lord's day. This is the Christian Sabbath, a day of communion. Oh, he can't join in, in, in agape feast. He's there banished on Patmos. But to feel like a companion in the kingdom, and there on the Lord's day to have communion with Christ, at least, and to hear this trumpet blast to what, what's the message that God is trying to send to me that I can then send to other people. Verse 11, here's the message. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. We saw him say that about himself back in verse 8. And here he is reiterating it from the very beginning. I'm the beginning, I'm the end, the beginning of every new good hope, the end of sin and suffering and sorrow. I'm the first, I'm the last, and what thou seest, he says, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Now, these are all literal branches of the Christian church there in Western Asia Minor. Uh, this is literally John's immediate audience. And yet the number seven is also beautifully symbolic. When you think about the seven days of creation, that until the world was whole and complete and total. So this can also represent the Christian church in its totality. Not just the saints in Smyrna or Sardis, but saints all across time and space as we are recipients of John's message. In verse 12, John reacts to this trumpet-sounding voice and turns to see the voice that spake with me. And then notice the description. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Remember the images here. They're going to come back. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, he saw one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Now, John is seeing the Lord here. And in this vision of the resurrected Savior, notice Notice the description. First of all, he's in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. 
He's surrounded by light. And that seems fitting since he is the light of the world. I imagine those lesser lights are paling in comparison to him. But what is John seeing as he looks upon this glorious light? There he is with a garment down to the foot, girt about with a golden girdle. Uh, to gird about your loins means you're ready to work and to run. And so here is an active Christ ready for some work to be done, some work in glory. Okay. When it describes him as one like unto the Son of Man, here's the condescending Christ. The Word made flesh. He dwelt among us and was like us. Now he's trying to make us more like him. And again with this description, his, his hair, his head, white like wool, white as snow. You get a picture of uh, these images of, of purity there. And if you don't quite get it from the whiteness, and, and you could use Isaiah for that, right? Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white as snow. So you have this image of purity, of cleanliness. But you also see it when you notice that his eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like fine brass, like they're burning in a furnace. To think about what purifies things. And a, a refiner's fire that gets rid of all the dross. To have, can you imagine looking into the eyes of the Lord that, that just seem to burn into you? But in doing so, they burn out the impurities that are within each of us. When we see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, John said in his first epistle. And here, for John himself to see the Lord, but to be truly seen by the Lord with this piercing gaze of refiner's fire, when it speaks of his voice as the sound of many waters, and water, I don't know if this is Niagara Falls, in which case it's the power of God's words, or if this is a bubbling brook, this is a gentle stream with all of its peacefulness and calm. There are other scriptures that speak of the peace and power of the Holy Ghost. And imagine the voice of Christ combining that power with that peace. Many waters indeed. In verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. There's the glorious, brilliant sunlight that we saw in the previous passage. Flame of fire in those eyes, well now the whole countenance is shining like the sun in all its glory. Oh, can you have his image engraven in your countenance? Will he burn it into us? so that we can become more like him, purge out the impurities. But also notice what's in his hand and what's in his mouth. From his mouth comes his sharp two-edged sword. And as we learn from Paul in the armor of God, the sword can represent the spirit and the word of God. No wonder it's coming out of his mouth. Think about how many verses in the Doctrine and Covenants early on talk about the Word of God being sharper than a two-edged sword unto the dividing asunder of both joint and marrow. God's Word cuts to the chase. God's Word divides those who listen to it from those who refuse to. 
And so picture as, as Jesus is trying to reveal these truths to John. First thing he sees, there he is with the sword itself coming out of his mouth, symbolically. We will find later in the book of Revelation what comes out of, this, of the adversary's mouth. And it's not a sharp two-edged sword. It's not light. It's darkness on the devil's part. But they are each trying to spread their word as we decide who we'll listen to and who we'll ignore. Notice also that in his right hand, and the right hand is usually the covenant hand, so the promise that God is making, the promise there, the right hand of Christ himself, and he's holding seven stars. We'll get back to that one in just a moment. But turn to verse 17, and John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Can you imagine being in the presence of life itself, capital L, and compared to him, I'm nothing but death. I am falling at his feet in complete humility, broken heart, contrite spirit. How does the Lord react? He laid his right hand upon me, that covenant hand, saying unto me, fear not. Don't fear your enemies. Don't fear your weaker self. Certainly don't fear me. For I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth, that's present, and was dead, that's past. And behold, I am alive forevermore, that's future. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. No wonder there's nothing to fear. Jesus has everything under control. It doesn't matter what the Romans are doing to you. It doesn't matter. Boiling, cauldrons of boiling oil, exiles on islands, doesn't matter. I have conquered death and hell themselves. I have the keys of those. And I can free you from them. Just like I can lock the devil up in them. And I'll never leave you. I'm past, present, future. I'm beginning and end. I live, though I was dead, I conquered death in the process. Do you get a sense of the hope that Christ is trying to convey to John so that John can convey it to his brethren in bonds, his sisters in suffering? Oh, this is the kingdom and the patience of Jesus. He then says in verse 19, Write. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. That's quite the writing assignment. But then he explains something. And this is where we get a sense of kind of some training wheels in chapter 1. This whole book is going to be so filled with symbols. But let me give you some baby steps and some clues to unlock the first two symbols I want you to see. Number one, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand. And number two, and the seven golden candlesticks. Let me tell you what these are. First, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the JST changes angels to servants. So we see these as, as John's mortal companions. The branch president of the, the branch in Sardis. Or the bishop of the Smyrna First Ward. Okay, these are, oh, they, we can call them angels, but they're mortal versions. They are the servants of the seven churches. And they are stars in the hands of Christ. And then the second the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. 
and the chapter ends. Now, like I said, here's, here's some baby steps. Here's some initial clues as to what the Lord is trying to get across with some of his rich symbolism. And I love this one. As I said in introducing chapter 1, three things we have to keep our eyes out for is who is Christ, what is his church, and who is leading it in Christ's physical absence. And there we see in such rich symbolism, Jesus in all of his purity and power, in all of his refining glory, the word of God coming forth from his mouth, and standing in the midst of seven golden candlesticks, which represent what? His churches. That's why seven is so beautiful as a symbolic number, not just a literal one. Because the entire church, the whole thing, and where is Christ? In the midst of them. It wasn't just John that was in the fellowship of suffering or the companionship of tribulation. Jesus was there with them. And when we suffer, when we struggle, when we face opposition or persecution, we have to know that the all-powerful Jesus Christ, him, he who is like the Son of Man, coming down to be with us, he truly is. And he remains with us through our difficulties. If you are suffering through dark days, please rest assured that he stands in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. If you worry for the future of the kingdom, you don't have to, because Christ is in charge, and he is with us. Not only that, can you imagine leading one of these branches and wishing John could come and help, wondering how are we going to keep people spiritually strong? How do we help fortify them in their faith against all this opposition? Apostles being killed left and right? Another one banished? What's to become of us? First, Jesus is in our midst. Second, he is holding his leaders in his own covenant right hand. If I had been called to lead the church in Philadelphia, that would have been such reassurance. Think about, think about this. Here's the beauty of symbolism and the layers of meaning we can begin to peel off. By using a picture and trying to get us to fill in the thousand words, what do we know about candlesticks, for example? Well, to picture them, they're gold, so they're, the church is of great worth, the church is meant to be pure, the church is meant to reflect the burning, powerful light of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is in the midst of the church. But what's amazing to me about candlesticks I've asked students this, what are candlesticks for? And they, say, they always say, well, they give light. I'm like, do they? Think harder. And once they are pushed back on that, they realize, oh, ooh, that's even better. Candlesticks don't give light. They simply hold the light up. Sound like what Jesus taught the Nephites? I am the light that you should hold to the world. When I say ye are the light of the world, really you're only the candlesticks. I'm the real light. But as a church, we're not the ones shining. It's not the church that's going to accomplish these great things. It's the church's role in elevating Christ before the eyes of all men and women. And if we can simply hold his light up, then his light will shine in any place of darkness. 
I love the thought of a candlestick. And I get to be part of that. And then stars, what are stars for? In the ancient world, not only did they give light, but they gave direction to see the constellations and know where our true north is and how do I navigate dark and stormy seas? I look up at stars. It's interesting because later in Revelation, we'll see what the devil does with his stars. He drags them down. He casts them down. And a falling star is one I would not want to follow. But compare that to the stars that Christ holds in his own right hand. If I were one of those stars, I would feel very confident knowing where I happen to be. If I'm following one of those leaders, if I'm a member of the church in Thyatira, then, Father, thank you for calling servants that I can look up to and that will lead in love and in light. You get in a sense of what chapter 1 is trying to accomplish. Because as we shift to chapter 2, we are going to see the le- these little mini-messages that John is going to write to each of the seven churches listed in chapter 1. But keep in mind everything we've already learned in chapter 1. Who Jesus is. Because in every single one of the seven little, le- little letters, John is going to remind them about something about Jesus that emerged in chapter 1. And to remind them, you are one of the golden candlesticks. And your church leader is in the right hand of Christ. You're in good hands. You're going to be okay. All right? So turn to chapter 2 and let's see these little messages. Each one will go 1 through 7 in chapter 2 and chapter 3. There's some interesting similarities in terms of how, how John is going to address them. And one of the greatest similarities is the way they all end with an incredible promised blessing if the members of that church will simply overcome. Now, that's the word that gets repeated seven times, one for each branch. And what is it that you have to overcome? Remember, if the book of Revelation is trying to get us to the tree of life in chapter 22, just like Lehi's dream was trying to get them to the tree of life as well. If we're reversing the fall and, and coming back into the presence of God and feeling his love, then what are we overcoming? We're overcoming the wicked world. We're ignoring the great and spacious building. We're getting through the mists of darkness. We're going to overcome Babylon which is going to be described in stark terms throughout the book of Revelation. But with that word overcome, it, it reminds me of an incredible story that President David O. McKay once shared. He was on a worldwide apostolic mission in the early 1920s. And I believe he was on a ship at sea during this mission, and he had what can best be described as a vision. And this is what he said about it. I fell asleep and beheld in vision something infinitely sublime. In the distance I beheld a beautiful white city, and John himself will have a vision of one of those later on. Though far away, yet I seemed to realize that trees with luscious fruit, sound like the tree of life, shrubbery with gorgeously tinted leaves, and flowers in perfect bloom abounded everywhere. The clear sky above seemed to reflect these beautiful shades of color. I then saw a great concourse of people approaching the city. Each one wore a white flowing robe, 
and we'll see people dressed in white robes in these chapters, and they also had a white headdress. Instantly, my attention seemed centered upon their leader, and though I could see only the profile of his features and his body, I recognized him at once as my Savior, just like John saw in chapter 1. The tint and radiance of his countenance was glorious to behold. There was a peace about him which seemed sublime. It was divine. The city, I understood, was his. It was the city eternal, and the people following him were to abide there in peace and eternal happiness. But who were they? he asked. As if the Savior read my thoughts, he answered by pointing to a semicircle that then appeared above them, and on which was written in gold the words, These are they who have overcome the world, who have truly been born again. That, to me, is what we're looking for in Revelation 2 and 3. We are trying to identify people who have somehow learned to overcome the world. Because that's, that's what we're trying to accomplish. The world is too much with us. And for us to rise above it and overcome it in order to be truly born again of Christ, that's, that's at the mission of our mortality. And it's the only hope we ever have to coming into the eternal city that David O. McKay saw in this vision and that John will reveal in this revelation. So pay close attention to the blessings promised to those who overcome and pay attention to what it is they have to overcome to get there. And in each little letter, and like I said, there's seven of them, and the number seven can be symbolic of the entire church, in each one, you're going to see four elements. Number one, a personal introduction from Jesus. And they will all draw upon some of the imagery we saw in chapter one. So remember that. Number two, there will be some form of praise for the good things that they're doing in that branch of the church. Number three, there will be correction, since there's typically always room for improvement. And number four, there will be promises that are made to those who overcome. Okay, so we're going to follow those four elements of each of the letters that John is writing to these seven churches. And the first one is in Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. He's addressing the saints in Ephesus. And this is an interesting one because we saw a whole letter to the Ephesians from Paul. Armor of God, and husbands love your wives, even as Christ loved the church, and some amazing foundation of prophets and apostles, and coming to the unity of the faith. There were some struggles there in Ephesus. It was a major city. Uh, we saw in the book of Acts, Paul spent a lot of time on his mission when he, there in Ephesus. And to try to strengthen the saints and to build the church there. It's interesting that John is writing to this same circle of saints. Now, if you had to title this little mini-message, you could call it First Love. You might write that in your margin. This, this is what he's going to be focused on here. And as I've wrestled with these seven cities, I've tried to come up with modern equivalents. And is there a modern city? I mean, if we don't know Ephesus very well, is there a modern city that like, oh, yeah, I, I get what it would be like to be a, 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 a Latter-day Saint in this city. So maybe that's what it would be like to be an ancient day saint in that city. And to me, the closest equivalent I could come up with for Ephesus is New York City. Okay, so any of you Manhattan members, any of you people that are trying to live the gospel in the Big Apple, welcome to life in Ephesus. Because Ephesus, to give you a little background, 
It's a major population center. Uh, some estimate at a population of a quarter of a million people, which was massive in the ancient world. It was the center of an imperial cult uh, in terms of religion. Do you remember in the book of Acts when it talked about great is Diana of the Ephesians and all these silversmiths are up in arms because Paul is going to ruin their craft? Well, the temple of Diana, or Artemis in Greek, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it contained this massive image of the goddess Diana that everyone worshipeth, according to the book of Acts. It was so huge, like I said, wonder of the ancient world. It had a hundred marble columns that were 55 feet high. That's massive for the ancient world. And it stood on a platform big enough for two football games to be taking place simultaneously. This was huge. And as a result, so enamored by the world all around them. Can you picture why it would be hard to live the gospel? To be humble in the face of such grandeur and glory? Can you picture why I'm picking New York City? <laughs> I've said before that we tend to worship the God who created the world we inhabit. And if we're out in the country and seeing nature, then the God of that creation is the God we worship. But when we're in a man-made world, we tend to worship the men and women who created it. I'll admit when I go to New York City and my head's up and my, my jaw's dropped and it's incredible what we've been able to construct. Uh, you walk down Times Square and can you picture being pulled in all these different directions by all that the world is offering if we'll just pay the world our heed, give the world our allegiance. It would have been hard to live the gospel in Ephesus, just like it's hard to live the gospel in New York City. But notice the message that God gives to these Ephesian saints. Verse 1, here's the personal introduction. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, and every time the word angel appears in the next two chapters, switch it out for servant like the JST does. We're talking about a mortal angel, okay? A, a man who's been called to lead the church here in our hometown. So, to the servant of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he, and here's the introduction, that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So that's what we saw back in chapter 1 how we situate Jesus in the midst of the church with the servants of God right there in his hand. This is a very loving, very present, very protective Lord. And he's right there with you, right there in New York City. I know you're feeling opposition. I know there's persecution. I know there's all these tugs and pulls trying to bring you away from me. But I'm right here if you'll just stay in my right hand. I'm in your midst. Look inward, not outward. Who cares about the world and what it's offering? Everything you need is right here in this fledgling kingdom of God. Hold on to it. In verse 2 and 3, here comes the praise. What the saints in Ephesus are doing well. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. You have borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. You see these Ephesian saints, they are enduring it well. The Lord is aware of their efforts against the odds. 
that you're trying to build the kingdom of God instead of falling to the kingdoms of the world. It doesn't matter that great is Diana of the Ephesians. Far greater is the God of Israel. And so your works, your labor, your patience, you've fought the good fight, you haven't fainted, despite all the opposition around you. I also love what he says, you can't bear them which are evil. And in a place with so many evil influences, a worldly place like New York City, it's like, nope, I'm not interested. In fact, it's not even lack of interest. It's opposition to the world, just like the world opposes us. When it says you've tried those which say they are apostles and they're not. Think about the signs of the times with false teachers and false prophets and false Christs. Here, false apostles. And it's amazing the stars of the world, the celebrities, and will we follow them? Or will we stick with the stars that are in the hand of Christ? Okay? Do I want to find myself in the midst of Times Square, ooing and aahing at all the television screens around me? Or do I want to stand in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks right alongside Jesus? Do I want to be in the hands of some worldly star? Or do I want to humbly follow the stars that Christ has placed before me that happen to be in his right hand? Okay. Do you see how the way he introduces himself also relates to the praise he's offering the people? You see more of that praise if you skip ahead to verse 6. Don't worry, we'll come back to 4 and 5. But in 6 he says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So you've hated evil, you can't bear it, back in verse 2. Here you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You don't hate the people, but you hate their deeds. And there's a good difference there. And then when he says, I I hate that too. Hmm, okay, so if you hate the things that God hates... That suggests you probably love the things God loves, and you're in good company. Do you remember this phrase from section 124 of the Doctrine and Covenants? When the Lord says to Hiram Smith, I the Lord love him because he loveth that which is right before me, saith the Lord. And I get the same sense from the Ephesian saints. You love what I love, you hate what I hate. Keep it up. But what is it about these Nicolaitans? What is that all about? Uh, again from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 117, verse 11, the Lord says, Let my servant Newell K. Whitney be ashamed of the Nicolaitan band and of all their secret abominations. And I, I hope that Bishop Whitney knew his, his New Testament well enough, or that would have been a very strange thing. The Nicolaitan band, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah, book of Revelation. Darn it. Am I getting sucked into worldliness the way the Ephesian saints were trying to resist? The Nicolaitans, according to Elder McConkie, he described them this way. Members of the church who are trying to maintain their church standing while continuing to live after the manner of the world. This designation has come to be used to identify those who want their names on the records of the church, but do not want to devote themselves to the gospel cause with full purpose of heart. Now do you get a sense of what a Nicolaitan band consists of? People... Oh, that want to be part of the kingdom of God, but not at the expense of being part of the kingdom of the world. Can't I have it both ways? Can't I serve two masters? Do I really have to choose? Well, yes, you do. Because the problem here is the deeds of the Nicolaitans. What what do you have to do to make these compromises with culture? 
Can you picture why New York City would be a good description, a good modern day equivalent? And again, I'm not trying to cast shade on any of you New York Saints. You're amazing. In fact, you're the type like the Ephesians here of you're pushing back against those things. You're staying faithful despite all the pulls of the world. And that says, that speaks volumes of your commitment to Christ. Now, if that's what they're doing well, is there still room for improvement? Yes, that's the case for all of us. But here's some corrective advice in verse 4 and 5. Nevertheless, the Lord says, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Oh, remove the candlestick. There goes the church in Ephesus. You've got to hold strong. You've got to stay valiant, pure. You've got to stay in love with me. The way you loved me from the very beginning. Remember, it was to the Ephesians that Paul said, Husband, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. This love of Christ. And as John said last week in 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. Well, if we were his first love, are, is he ours? Think about it. You converts out there, how did you feel about the church when you first joined it? You lifelong members, how did you feel when you first became truly converted and gained a testimony of your own? Think about days that you just, you saw things clearly and thought to yourself, I would never want to sin again. And the way you felt about the gospel as a missionary or at EFY or FSY or what, what, just some moment when it all was crystal clear. And what the Lord is worrying about here is, why don't you love me the way you used to? Think about where you've fallen from. If the heights of your devotion, that'd be an interesting question to ponder, honestly. When have I felt strongest about the gospel? When have I felt closest to Christ? When have I loved him most deeply and most sincerely? And then ask, how do I feel about him right now? And if the way I feel about him now is less than my first answer, then I have fallen from a place I once was. The, for him to say, again, the way he phrases it is so powerful. You've left your first love. This is like country mouse, city mouse. And a country mouse, you worship the God of nature. And then you went to the city and became enamored with the oohs and ahs of the world all around you. It's easy to do in a place like New York. But to remember your first love, and if you want to come back to that love, then remember the first works. Interesting parallel there. First love and first works. I'll put it this way for you married couples out there. What were the first works in your relationship? How did you treat one another? What did you do for one another? Oh, thoughts of how can I 
<laughs> how can I serve them next? What's the next thing I can do to let them know how much I love them? In my case, I had a lot of work to do to convince my wife that I might be worth marrying. It took me seven months of proposing unsuccessfully until she finally relented and agreed. So thankful for that. There was a lot of first works to just try to let her know how I felt about her. One of the ones that I was so excited about, as I'm not a winter lover. I, I, I'm, a, I'm wimpy. I'm a Southern Californian, and I prefer the heat. But in wintertime, I realized, ooh, that's when I started dating my wife. And I thought, ooh, when it snows, I could rush over to her house and shovel her walk and scrape off her car. And I was so excited about big snowfalls overnight because I knew I could be up at the crack of dawn and go do her her path, I just pictured her walking out of her apartment, and it's winter wonderland everywhere, but then seeing this freshly shoveled walk just to her car, which had been freshly scraped clear, so she could just head off to work without having to do any of that herself. And I thrilled every chance I got to do that. Thankfully, she knew it was me and realized, man, he, I guess he kind of likes me. Oh, big time. And I'd do anything for you. Now, that was one of many things I tried to do to show her how I felt about her. But there's an interesting sequel to the story. We'd been married several years, several years by then. And we were getting busy with life and work and more school and children and so on. And it happened to be a day, unbeknownst to me, that my wife was starting to wonder if I still loved her the way I did when we were first engaged and married. And she was thinking back to some of those, those old times and all the things that I would do to make it clear that she was my first love. And she started to wonder, does he still do the first works? Well, it happened to be during the winter and it happened to have snowed the night before. And I had to rush off to get to work. So I scraped my car really fast and, had to, had, and took off, but her car was still there, and we didn't have a garage. It was just out, dumped on, on, under, under snow as well. And as I was pulling out, I just saw her snow-covered car and thought, I don't want her to have to scrape her car. And so I put it in park and ran over and scraped her car as quickly as I could and then jumped back in mine and headed off to work. Didn't say anything, didn't have time. Uh, I just took off. And later that day, as my wife was getting out the door to do something, she looked and saw her freshly scraped car and realized the first works are still being done by a husband who still loves me as much as he ever did. I still do. And I pray that we can convince the Lord through our first works that we have not fallen from our first love. That to me is one of the most beautiful oh, pieces of correction. A kind covenant companion inviting us back into relationship with him. Do the things that brought you that original testimony. Have you slacked off in your prayer life? Has your scripture study become a little more lackadaisical? Is your temple attendance too casual? Whatever it might be, just go back to the first works and the first love will return. And when it does, what's the promise? Notice how this mini message ends. 
He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And he'll keep repeating that too. This it seems to be the equivalent of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There's more to this than I'm saying. Okay, listen up. And if you really have ears to hear, ooh, let him hear and get past surface level on this symbol. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And thus ends the mini message to the Ephesians. But again, do you see how it comes together? He was talking about love. And if you'll return to your first love through your first works, what will I give you? I will give you all my love as well. Because isn't that what the tree of life represents? To eat this fruit that is sweet above all that is sweet and more delicious above all that is delicious, because that is God's love made manifest through Jesus Christ. Please love me. I love you. And if you can overcome your love of the world, then you will be able to feast upon the love of God for the rest of your life. That's the promise. You're back in paradise. You're back into the place of the Lord's creation, worshiping Him who created it. I, lo I love the letter to the Ephesians. Okay? This little seven-verse message is so filled. You might also want to consider, and this is a, another way to look at the seven candles, the seven candlesticks, because in the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon, oh, on the, as you came into the holy place, if you're a priest, on the left side was a candlestick with seven bowls of oil. This was the menorah. And it was that seven-branched candlestick that gave light to the holy place in the temple of God. So another way to see this is not just like seven individual candlesticks kind of on the ground making a circle with Jesus in the midst. That's one way to look at it, and that's fine. I'm in the middle of my church. But also to picture the, the menorah, to, be, the, to make this a temple text. And there I am, and there's the menorah. And what is it supposed to look like? Why this, this kind of trunk and then branches coming out? Because it was a tree of light, just like a tree of life. Part of going into the temple is returning to the presence of God, coming into his paradise, right? And so reversing the fall, coming back into Eden. I already took the fruit of, I partook of the fruit of knowledge. That's what got me out. I want to partake of the fruit of love, of love and life. That's what brings me back in. And so just like you're seeing Christ is in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks and the seven servants in his hand. And if you just follow me and love me like you once did, then you will be there in the temple with me, partaking of the love of God, standing there in the glow of the candlestick, the tree of light and life. Amazing. Now, let's get back on, on our journey. And we're going to go from Ephesus to Smyrna. I lived in, in just outside Smyrna, Tennessee, when we lived near Nashville. And there's a lot of Smyrnas across the country. And they're all named after this Smyrna from the book of Revelation. Uh, we, it's, a, it's a very short one. We only get verses 8 through 11. And if we wanted to title this mini-message, you could call it Faithful in Tribulation. Don't forget that John is a companion in their tribulation. And the saints in Smyrna are suffering. Now, if I were to pick a modern-day equivalent, a city that we might be more familiar with, I would pick Nauvoo. And not Nauvoo of the 21st century, Nauvoo of the 19th. I would picture Joseph Smith and the saints there 
days of glory, but also days of persecution. And that's what the saints are facing there in Smyrna. To give you some background there, the name itself might be related to myrrh. So think of Smyrna, uh, because myrrh was one of its chief exports. The city of Smyrna was known for its schools of science and medicine. Now you can picture the University of Nauvoo that Joseph's trying to set up there, right? It had a theater that was so big you could fit 20,000 spectators there. And unfortunately, one of the spectacles they saw was the martyrdom of one of its earliest bishops. Picture a star in the hand of Christ being snuffed out. The man's name was Polycarp. He was the Bishop of Smyrna at the beginning of the second century. And he was a disciple of John. There would have been a connection there. And yet he was burned at the stake because of his testimony of Jesus and the word of God. His master, John, was banished. He, Polycarp, was burned at the stake for it. But it's interesting, uh, the Antinicene fathers recorded um, the, some of the history here, and there's a conversation between Polycarp and his persecutors. They say to him, reproach Christ and I will set you free. That's all you got to do. Just deny him and you're a, you're a free man. And yet Polycarp's response, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And he went willingly to the flames. But according to the history of this event, notice what happened. For the fire, shaping itself into the form of an arch, encompassed as by a circle the body of the martyr. And he appeared within, not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked, or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Sounds like the furnace and the feet of brass that John saw in Jesus back in chapter 1. This is Polycarp passing through the refiner's fire, but becoming bread of life in the process. The history then ends, moreover, we perceived such a sweet odor as if frankincense or some such precious spices had been smoking there. Oh, is that more of the frankincense and myrrh that Smyrna was known for? To have a place of persecution, a place where the martyr's crown was given to people like Polycarp. And that's another reason I chose Nauvoo because Carthage is just a short ride away. And what happened to Joseph and Hiram, what happened to so many saints, and yet they maintained their faith and their faithfulness in spite of it all. That's what you'll see here. Notice verse 8, the personal introduction that precedes the message. Unto the angel, that is the servant of the church in Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Just like Jesus had introduced himself back in chapter 1. And to these saints, what a reminder. I was dead, I'm not anymore. Which means death is not the end. Christ has conquered death. So if that's what you have to face, don't worry about it. It's like what the Lord said to Joseph Smith from the very beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants. Don't worry about what they can do to you. They can't do to you anything worse than what they did to me. <laughs> Poor Joseph, like, is that supposed to make me feel better? They killed you. Well, yeah, I was dead, but I am alive. And if you'll follow me, I will conquer death for you as well. That's the Lord that they need to be holding on to during their time in Smyrna. If that's the personal introduction, here's the praise. Verse 9. 
I know thy works and tribulation. That becomes synonymous with the saints there in Smyrna. And poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. It's you suffering saints that are the true house of Israel. The rest that are rejecting or persecuting you, oh, that's the synagogue of Satan. I'm aware of how hard you're working to stay faithful. I'm aware of your tribulation and what you're going through. I'm aware of your poverty. In a place of so much wealth there in Smyrna. But because you're a faithful Christian, you're probably cut off from those kinds of economic opportunities. But don't worry. You're only, po you're only impoverished in the world's estimation. Thou art rich when it comes to the kingdom of God. This is, these are the blessings of the riches of eternity from him who is rich in mercy and rich in grace. I love that piece of praise. When it comes to correction, well, that's the irony in Smyrna. There is none. The Ephesians still had to work on getting back to their first love by doing the first works. But among the saints in Smyrna, there's no correction offered, which ought to tell us something. Maybe persecution isn't the worst thing in the world. Maybe prosperity is. Maybe it's our opposition that keeps us tightly holding to our covenants with Christ. Maybe it's easier to live the gospel when people are pushing against it rather than some kind of Nicolaitan band that can still hold to the church, sort of, even when they're really going the ways of the world. Okay, Smyrna Saints, you're doing awesome. To the point that these promises are now yours. Verse 10 and 11. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. And yes, thou shalt suffer them. They're coming. Okay, but don't be afraid of it. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days and that's not a literal 10 days, but it is nice to know it's just a set period of time that there is an ending, an effectual end, if you just hold out faithful. And that's what he's asking them to do. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Don't you remember how I introduced myself just a few verses ago? I was dead and am alive. If you end up dead, no worries. I will give you a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit saith unto the churches, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Oh, the second death, that's the one that really should strike fear into us. The second death is a second spiritual death. That's how Samuel the Lamanite described it. It's returning to God for judgment, but then having to leave him again. We left his presence the first time on Adam and Eve's account, but we leave him the second time on our own if we haven't repented. So to these who seem to have hardly anything to repent of, not corrected at all, oh, if you'll still be willing to submit, if you're willing to go through the refiner's fire to purge out the dross, then yes, you're tried you're troubled, but it's only for a period of time. Thy, thine adversities and thine affliction shall be but a small moment, Joseph was told. And if thou endure it well, thou shalt be exalted on high. That's the promise here, a crown of life with nothing, no danger coming.
from the second death. Can you picture Paul saying similar things? None of these things move me. How oh, to think of glorying in his sufferings because they're simply preparing him for unimaginable glory. That's the attitude John has. It's the attitude he's hoping the saints in Smyrna have. And based on this mini-message, I think they've got it. Smyrna would be a great place to move. Let's go to Nauvoo, shall we? Even persecution come what may. The third city then comes in verses 12 through 17. And this is the city of Pergamos. Uh, if you want to label this one, call it the true word of God. And our modern equivalent for Pergamos is Boston. Now, I chose Boston because Boston in our day is synonymous with higher education. Harvard's there, and MIT's there, and Boston College, and Boston University, and so many of the greatest schools in American history are right there in Boston. Uh, in some ways, you think, remember when we talked about Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as this sister city of Athens? Pergamos was the Athenian equivalent in Asia Minor. It was built and almost intended as a second Athens. Uh, it was a place, a major population center, a major cultural center, and it housed a world-famous library. In fact, it was second only to the Library of Alexandria. So again, you get a sense of, I mean, I've been to the Harvard Library, it's amazing. Uh, and this place where just there's so much intelligence and worldly wisdom all around you. In Ephesus, it seemed to be worldly wealth. In Smyrna, it was worldly persecution. Here in, in, in Pergamos, it is worldly wisdom. And I mean, the, the name of the city itself is where we get the word parchment. Uh, Pergamon and Pergamos is where parchment gets its name. And it, that's where it was produced. And so to have writing materials, and we're going to record things, and no wonder we have this massive library, and all of the world's wisdom is going to be housed right here. We know better than God. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul says, I had to determine to know nothing save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because you people put so much stock in the wisdom of men, and I'm trying to get you to place your faith in the power of God. That's hard to do in a place like Boston, when there are so many smart people all around you. And people who out, outthink the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and are so intellectually in tune that they fall out of tune, spiritually speaking. That's the problem here. So notice how the Lord introduces himself in verse 12. And to the angel, that is the servant of the church in Pergamos, write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Remember, that's what we saw coming out of the mouth of Jesus back in chapter 1. And it's the word of God that's coming forth. Again, perfect symbol for the saints there in Pergamos because they're used to having swords come out of the mouth of the intellectual elite. Their words are the things that we're inscribing on this parchment. Their words are the things we are assembling in our grand municipal library. But what about the word of God? What about the sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth? Are you willing to prioritize God's word over the word of the world? Well, some did. And here's the praise in verse 13. I know thy works. He said that repeatedly to his city so far. I know what you're up to, how you're doing, how you're living. I know your works. And where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. 
and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now, in that one verse, you're seeing some interesting opposition. It wasn't confined just to Smyrna, evidently. Okay, Prophets can be martyred even far away from Nauvoo. But here in Boston, here in Pergamos, there were people like Antipas that became a faithful martyr as well. And you're going to be facing that kind of potential martyrdom because you're sitting there right there at Satan's seat. Now, one of the things I didn't mention about Pergamos is not only is there this magnificent library, but there's also a temple to Zeus that stood on a hill overlooking the town. And the way that this temple or this altar was built, it made it almost look like a giant throne, as if Zeus himself could sit there and survey his territory below. Now, that seems to be what John is hinting at when he talks about Satan's seat. There's always animal sacrifice being offered up there to these pagan gods, day and night. And talk about burning the midnight oil to some intellectual deity. That does sound a lot like higher education. Uh, but it's the throne that you can end up sitting on because look at the advanced degrees that you have and you're so smart. Oh, beware of false philosophy that sometimes seems to emerge from Satan's seat and causes the faithful to face intellectual martyrdom in some ways. It's interesting because in verse 13, there's a where that they're up against, where Satan dwells, and there's a when they're up against in those days wherein Antipas was a faithful martyr. And what I am amazed about the faithfulness of the saints in Pergamos is they remain faithful despite the wares and the winds. It's one thing to say, but oh, if only I lived in Smyrna, then I'd be faithful like the Smyrna saints. Well, you don't live there. You live here and you're still being faithful. Good on you. Or if only I'd lived in other days when there wasn't so much persecution. Well, these are your days. And will you be faithful right here and right now. For you who are living in Boston or any of its sister cities across the world, for you who are in the middle of university education and starting to be pulled in the direction of Athens instead of Jerusalem, oh, please hold out faithful no matter what. Otherwise, you'll need the same kind of correction that the Lord is giving to the saints in Pergamos which is found in verse 14 through 16. He says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Oh, we saw them before, back in Ephesus, right? Which thing I hate. Repent, therefore or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Back to the way he introduced himself. I'm the one with that sharp sword after all. Two edges, and they will come slashing through to separate you from the righteous that you're not really a part of. You're a Nicolaitan, just like I saw back in Ephesus, and people that are, oh no, I still have a testimony, sort of. I'm still a card-carrying member of the kingdom of God. 
Are you? Or have you become so enamored by worldly wisdom that you're going in that direction? So there's the Nicolaitans. But then Balaam, there's the other one. Remember Peter mentioned them as well and cautioned them because you followed the way of Balaam instead of the way of the Lord? Balaam was the one with the talking donkey, remember? Who just wanted to tag along with the enemies of Israel. I mean, I'm not going to do anything against Israel, I don't think. But if God happens to change his mind, then it'd be nice to be in close proximity to you who could give me so much honor and praise. In fact, that's the thing that Balak keeps saying to Balaam. I can promote thee unto honor. Can you picture the, the dean there at Harvard telling you the same thing? Uh, can you picture the president there at MIT? If you just come my way and do things my way, then the way of the world will be yours for the taking. And we can promote you to great honor when it's not the honor of God. You with me? Which sword, which word will we cleave to? And unfortunately, as I've said to many of my students, college is where faith goes to die for too many people. And they feel like they've outsmarted God when it didn't have to be that way. What could it have been otherwise? Here's the promise in verse 17. If you'll simply, say, simply stay faithful, if you'll push back Balaam and his offers or Nicol the Nicolaitans and their problems, what will the Lord offer you? Verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. There's the wink, wink, nudge, nudge again. There's more to this than meets the eye, so think your way through this. And here's the promise. To him that overcometh, overcome the world, overcome the tugs and pulls, overcome the, the wisdom of the world, will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Ah, think of that. Hidden manna. Remember what was said about manna? That it was given so that men would know not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. Manna is something you're putting into your mouth. Well, what's coming out of God's mouth? Are you willing to listen? There were all those kinds of strict requirements about manna, and when to when to gather it and when not to and how does it work on the Sabbath and so on. And will you, it was a great exercise in following directions. And will you hang on every word of God? Here comes the sword from his mouth. How will you treat manna around you? And if you do it well, I've got hidden manna that I can give you. I can teach you things that can't be learned in any other way. There's hidden manna. And then the white stone with a new name. In section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 10 and 11, Joseph asked about that white stone. What is it? The white stone mentioned in Revelation 2, verse 17. What's that all about? And the Lord's answer, it will become a Urim and Thummim to each individual who receives one, whereby things pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms will be made known. And a white stone is given to each of those who come into the celestial kingdom, whereon is a new name written which no man knoweth, save he that receiveth it. The new name is the key word. And that's exactly what we saw in this promise to the saints in Pergamos. You want, you want to learn something new? Some amazing insight? Then turn to the Lord. 
Seek the Spirit. Study the Scriptures. And the Lord will give you... The the same one who sends a sword from his mouth will reveal truth to you in incredible ways. He will give you hidden manna that can't be gathered otherwise. He will give you a white stone with a name you can't learn in any other classroom. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There's something powerful here. To be granted your very own Urim and Thummim. It means, that means lights and perfections. To be able to see things in a perfect way, there's an education that no school in Pergamos could possibly offer you. For that, you need the school of the prophets. For that, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the fact that we can get that kind of higher education is pretty mind-blowing. You know, years ago, I had set my sights on grad school, and before the church sent me to, to Nashville, where I found that Vanderbilt was a better option than anything I'd picked for myself, up to that point, my first choice had been Yale. So I was going to avoid uh, Harvard. I was going to avoid uh, Boston. But I was, did feel pretty drawn to New Haven. In fact, the history was interesting because the, the reason that Yale was, in, was, was established was that the old Puritan fathers felt that Harvard was going to hell in a handbasket. And it had gone the way of the world. It was turning into Pergamos. And so they said, we've got to create a better bastion of spiritual strength and we'll, we'll make it Yale. Now, Yale eventually went the same way. And so they were like, well, now we need to establish Princeton or we've got to do this. And, and there's all these religious schools that were popping up throughout New England and beyond. But what, I, what amazes me is to this day, if you were to look at Yale University's insignia, it would tell you its first love. It would tell you the, the foundation upon which it was, it was built. And what you'll see there is an open book that's meant to represent the Bible. In Puritan days, that's the only Bible, that's the only book people needed to read. <laughs> Underneath is a scroll that says Lux et Veritas, which is the Latin for light and truth. Think about that. What's the Doctrine and Covenants tell us? The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. It's got to be light, the Lord's light, not just the worldly flickers and flames. It's got to be truth, not just some kind of earthly sophistication. So Luke's et Veritas, it's, that's the kind of education we all need to be seeking. And you don't have to go to Yale to get it. Okay? You can go to get that anywhere. But then on the book itself, and this is the part that really blows me away, it had Latin on the scroll, it has Hebrew on the book. And if you know enough of your Hebrew to read the this insignia of Yale University, it says, Urim Vatumim. It says, Urim and Thummim, right there on the insignia, printed across the open pages of the Bible. It's amazing. Light and truth down below. Lights and perfections up above. And what were the founders of Yale hoping to accomplish? To create a university where people could come to learn truth bathed in the light of the Lord. To give everyone their very own Urim and Thummim, whereby God could reveal all truth to them as soon as they were ready to receive it. That's grad school for you. <laughs> That's 
education in the Lord's own way. And that's the promise here to those who overcome lesser ways of learning. I, I love the message to Pergamos. As an educator myself, I'm always, I, I always, always see this mini-message as a cautionary tale and try to guard against it. With that, we're ready for city number four. And this is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. This is a long one. It's to the city of Thyatira, and if you wanted to title this one, you could call it Purity Preserved. That's hard to do in a place like Thyatira. In some ways, it's the sin city of Western Asia Minor. So any guesses on what city I'm picking as our modern metaphor? No offense to you saints in Las Vegas, and you're amazing. In fact, you're like the saints in Thyatira that are doing incredibly well. Now, the fact that you have one temple that's gorgeous and that you're getting a second one now lets us know how strong you saints are there in Sin City. For you, it's Saint City, but it's these little pockets of saints there <laughs> surrounded by the sin. And that's the challenge of life in Thyatira. Historically, Thyatira was a commercial town full of traders and craftsmen. There were more worker guilds there than in any other uh, contemporary city in Asia Minor. Yeah, remember in the book of Acts when we met Lydia, that incredible saint, uh, she was a seller of purple, which would suggest that she was wealthy. She could probably afford to have her own house church once she converted. Guess where she was from? She was from Thyatira, okay? A place where there were probably other sellers of purple and sellers of all other kinds of stuff. And so good place to get rich, uh, to make some money, to spend some money, and one of the challenges in merchant towns like this is you have so many people coming and going, kind of trade routes and so on, that it's often a place where the moral standards are lower. Because people are, I'm not going to be around to suffer from a bad reputation. I can come and do some things I wouldn't do at home and then head back out and nobody has to be the wiser. Okay? That's life in Thyatira. It also suggests that monetary gain is what's most important to people. And unfortunately, for saints living in Thyatira, to be part of the economic game, you usually have to be part of the religious game too. And so why aren't you coming to the, the pagan parties, the Babylonian barbecues we talked about? Why aren't you worshiping the, the gods and goddesses and Caesar and so forth? If you're, you've got some other little, I don't know what you're, where you're coming from. I don't want to trade with you. I don't want you as my business partner. Okay, so hard to get ahead spirit, uh, economically when you're trying to stay faithfully spirit, stay faithful spiritually. Okay, welcome to life in Las Vegas. Now, personal introduction, look at verse 18. And unto the angel, a.k.a. servant of the church in Thyatira, write, these things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. We saw that back in his initial introduction back in chapter 1. And what, are, what symbols are we sensing here? Ooh, this is refiner's fire. This is burning away the dross. This is purity that we're after. As the Lord can just look through you and see any little speck of sin that still needs to be burned away. We see a reminder of that later in verse 23, where he says, I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. So yes, with that piercing gaze, that burning view, to be able to look at our hearts to make sure that they're pure. 
Now the praise given to the saints there, notice verse 19. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. This is like the opposite of what we saw in Ephesus where they'd fallen from their first love. Here, they're, they're progressing beyond it. Where they are now is even more than what they were doing at the first. You are increasing in charity. You're progressing in service. Your faith and your patience are better than what they used to be. Again, it's amazing that despite the wicked world all around you, you are growing up in God. Hats off to you saints in Thyatira. Now, unfortunately, not everyone's living that way. And again, it's a tough place to pull off that kind of righteousness. So there in Sin City, here's some correction for you. Verse 20 to 22. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. So as a result, behold, I will cast her into a bed. The JST says hell, but there's some interesting symbolism with a bed when we just talked about fornication and seduction and a woman named Jezebel. But to cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. In a way, what the Lord is saying here is, hey, you made your bed, now lie in it. The fact that he would even call this woman Jezebel. Now, could that be a literal person that's there? Some woman in, in Thyatira whose name is literally Jezebel, and you've got to steer clear of her? Of her? Maybe. Then, then again, by using the name Jezebel, oh, every Jewish convert to Christianity knows what that entails. In some ways, she was the female equivalent of Balaam of just trying to get ahead and get her own honor and try to curse Israel and its God all throughout the process. It was Jezebel, perhaps more than any other woman, that brought down the northern kingdom of Israel and led to their scattering by the Assyrians. And here there's some first century equivalent of Jezebel calling herself a prophetess, Back in Ephesus, they had to try the apostles who claimed to be apostles, but really weren't. And here, this prophetess, oh, is that a true prophetess or a false one? Is she persuading me to come into Christ or seducing me to go the way of the world? Am I being faithful to God or committing covenant fornication by cheating on the God that I am supposed to be in covenant relationship with. You understand? Uh, it's really interesting all this imagery that is being brought, especially in light of the fact that the Lord is looking at it all with eyes of flaming fire. He knows what's going on in the heart and all the seduction that's taking place in a place like Thyatira, Sin City. He goes on in verse 23 and 24, having spoken of this fornication and seduction with a woman like Jezebel, he then says, I will kill her children with death. And these are illegitimate children outside covenants with Christ. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, like I quoted earlier. 
and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. There's the law of the harvest coming back to haunt you. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. I mean, this is a burden enough. I'm simply asking you to stay pure in a place that makes that really hard to come by. I'm not going to pile on any other commandments here. You, you're struggling. You've got enough to deal with, but you've got to come off pure. If you do, here's the promise, 25 through 29. But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. I love that phrase. You've got all that you need. Just hold on to it. And he that overcometh, and what are we overcoming? Well, the wickedness of Thyatira, the wickedness of Sin City all around us. If you can, if you will, and if you keepeth my works, now the JST says my commandments unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, or JST, over many kingdoms, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. Or as the JST puts it, he shall rule them with the word of God, and they shall be in his hands as the vessels of clay in the hands of a potter. And he shall govern them by faith, with equity and justice, even as I received of my father. And then the promise ends. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Okay. Fascinating promise there. To rule the kingdoms with a rod of iron. The iron rod is the word of God. That's what the JST clarifies. If you'll be pure, I will purify this iron. I will purge out any impurities within it. And with that iron rod, with that word of God, you will be able to rule the nations instead of having the nations rule you, seducing you to do things in their way, which is just unfaithfulness. It's spiritual fornication. You've got to overcome that. If you do, you'll be able to shape things like the potter, like the Lord is trying to shape you. Good, pure clay. No impurities. In fact, I'll give you the morning star, which is a reminder that the night is almost over. The day dawn is about to break. You're, you've almost made it. You saints of Thyatira, just hold on to what you have. It's true. It will get you through it. Now, chapter 2 ends then, having gone through the, four, the first four cities. Chapter 3 then picks up where, right where we left off with the final three. And again, keep paying attention for introduction and praise and correction and promise. It's all here. The first one we'll meet is the city of Sardis, which is the first six verses of Revelation chapter 3. If you want to label this one, you could call it saints in fact, not merely in name. And brace yourself. I know where many of you are from that are listening to this. The city I've chosen to represent Sardis is none other than Salt Lake City. That's why I'm talking about being a saint in fact and not just in name. Because one of the struggles we have where we are in the majority is sometimes we can just coast along in some, time, some type of 
cultural connection instead of a covenant commitment. And that's one of the problems that the saints are facing in Sardis. Now, Sardis, historically, was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. It's a commercial city that's known for its wealth. It obtained it in part through its trade in clothing. Uh, and what's interesting about this place, though, about the, the clothing that they wore, the wealth that they gained as a result, that prestige often started to sap their spiritual strength and their righteous desire. I mean, if I can just maintain the outward trappings of church membership without having to have real inner discipleship, then, you know, I can kind of talk the talk without having to walk the walk. What's interesting about that is to compare the kind of clothing that is being traded there in Sardis to the kind of robes of righteousness that can only come from Christ. So it's not enough to be walking around the Wasatch Front and looking like a Latter-day Saint when inwardly... I mean, this, this is just the whited sepulchers that Jesus talked about. Okay? You look good on the outside, but what's going on inside? That's what God really cares about. So, how does he introduce himself? Look at verse 1. Unto the angel, that is the servant of the church in Sardis, write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. That is, the seven stars, which are the seven servants of God. So there's something here about, I've got all these servants of God right here in my hand. That's another reason why I'm choosing Salt Lake City as our place. Because here's the first presidency. Here's the Quorum of the Twelve. Here's people who are, here are people who are really living the gospel of Jesus Christ in as consecrated a way as you can imagine. How do you measure up compared to them? How do you shine compared to these stars in the hand of God? Are you in His covenant hand? Or are you, are you, going, are you leaning in the ways of the world instead? Now, the praise that they receive is in verse 4. We're going to skip ahead to that, and then we'll come back to correction. The praise in verse 4 says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Remember, Sardis was known for its clothing trade. And so here, John is playing on that, or Jesus is playing on it, since it's his message, saying, oh, some of you actually are well-dressed. But it's godly garments that I'm looking at, not some kind of outward show. You will end up walking with me in white, the color of purity. You don't have to come up with some kind of gaudy and yet ungodly clothing to attract the eyes of those around you. If that's the praise, there's a few names there. I know them, okay? I've got them in my hand right alongside the, the stars. But here's the correction for those that, that that praise doesn't apply to. Go back to the end of verse 1 and continue on through verse 3. And here's the Lord's constructive criticism. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Or the JST, and art not dead. At least that's the name you're known by. Okay? Again, we're getting this whited sepulcher. What do people perceive of you? You've got a name that, hey, this, I'm a living person. I'm a, I'm a real saint. I'm not spiritually dead. What are you talking about? But the Lord says, be watchful. And the JST adds, therefore. So as a result of this, you better keep your eyes open. You better be watchful. And in fact, you better strengthen the things which remain. Or the JST, strengthen those who remain, who are ready to die 
For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Oh, in some ways it sounds like the ten virgins. And Salt Lake City is a perfect place for them, right? All who have been invited to the wedding feast, all that have a name that they're alive and definitely not dead spiritually. Oh no, we're ready for the coming of the bridegroom. Well, are you? Or are your works not perfect before God? You're trying to make them appear perfect before those around you. But God, remember we met about him or saw about him earlier that he has the eyes to see, that he can tell the, the reins and the hearts, this burning vision to be able to see what we're really made of. And he sees that our works are far from perfect before him. Oh, what do we need to be doing? We need to be holding fast to the things that we know to be true. That seems to be an ever-increasing problem where Latter-day Saints are in the majority in our day as well. Holding on, repenting of our sins. Otherwise, the Lord will come as a thief and we won't be found ready. That's the problem. Now, if we can overcome that, if we can... Oh, not just have the name, but have the deeds behind it. Faith as well as the works and so on. Then notice the promise that comes our way. Verse 5 and 6. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Oh, do you see how those promises tie back into the praise that the righteous saints of Sardis received a few verses ago? This idea of having, a, there's a few names there in Sardis that have not defiled their garments. And here, those that are, that are able to overcome the hypocrisy all around them, they will have their names confessed by the Lord. I mean, after all, they confessed the name of God everywhere they went. And not just in what they said, that's easy, but in how they lived, that's a lot harder. No, those names are not blotted out of the book of life. They're in there for good. And they will be given white raiment to wear. Just like they were clothed in goodly garments before. It's amazing to, to ponder life when you're the majority religion. And I learned this when I lived in the South and saw cultural Christianity. I've learned it living in Utah and seeing among the saints, those that just go with the flow culturally and are trying to fit in, though they're not really converted to the gospel, as opposed to those who let their light shine before this very people and do it not to be seen of men, but rather to point them to the light of the world. A candlestick holding up light before other candlesticks. So interesting. That's the kind of Latter-day Saint I want to be, right here in, in the Mormon corridor, as it's been called. Okay? Now, there's two more cities that we still need to, to understand. The second to last one is the city of Philadelphia, uh, and we've got one of those on the east coast of, our, of the United States. This Philadelphia, I want to compare to the city of Manti, that those of you that are not from Utah might not even know of this town, and that's okay. It is a small town. 
And not to say anything about the size of the ancient Philadelphia, but I want you to get a sense of a town of truly Christ-like people. The, the reason I chose Manti is I'm always amazed when I go down there uh, that it is such a small community, and yet it has one of the pioneer temples of the church. And up until very recently, it was one of the only two final temples that had a live endowment session, the other being Salt Lake City. Now, in Salt Lake City, you have so many Latter-day Saints. To be able to find people that can memorize the entire endowment and be able to staff the temple all around the clock, uh, that, that's doable in Salt Lake. But in Manti? And every time I go, I look around when I leave the temple and look at this farmland, as far as the eye can see, and think, where on earth does the temple find enough Latter-day Saints to be able to come and perform a live endowment all the time? And I, my hat is off to these incredible saints that are living the gospel in this kind of community of, it's almost like the opposite of the Salt Lake City description we just saw in Sardis, that there seems to be majority members there in Manti too, but they're living the gospel in, in wonderful ways. And again, not to say there aren't those in Salt Lake City doing the same thing, okay? Don't take this too personally, but take it personally enough, okay? Now, when it comes to Philadelphia, we're going to see verses 7 through 13, and a good title here would be Safe Within. And that reminds me of Manti also, where it's kind of this, oh, smaller community, and, and we all have each other's backs, and we're, we're going to take care of each other from outside influences. Now, in the ancient world, Philadelphia, the name itself means one who loves his brother. That's why modern-day Philadelphia is called the City of Brotherly Love. It was a very fertile area, and maybe that reminds me of the, the farmland around Manti as well. But it was known for its grape production, which allowed for uh, some excellent wine to be produced. And that sent, you get a sense of, of brotherly and sisterly camaraderie and fellowship from that as well. Now, one challenge, it was located in an area known for its earthquake activity. So there may be some shaking of faith as a possibility if we're not strong enough to resist. Now, with that in mind, look at the personal introduction the Lord gives in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, to the servant that is, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. With that description, Jesus presents himself as someone oh, eminently capable able to handle anything we throw his way. He has the key of David. And with that key, he can open things to the point no one can shut it, or he can shut things, lock them up, and no one can open. He will do things according to his will, and no one can speak against it. After all, he is holy. He is true. So why would anyone oppose him? Now, in this town of brotherly love here in Philadelphia, these saints who put their utmost trust in the Lord, he has the key. You put it in the ignition and take us wherever you want us to go. We trust you fully. It's interesting because in the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, it speaks of the key of David also. And I think it adds a little more insight into what John is writing here in Revelation 3. This is Isaiah 22, 22. And it says, The key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so that he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. So same idea as what we see here in Revelation. But notice the verse right before it, in verse 21. I will commit thy government into his hand, 
That's why he gets the keys. I want you to run the show. Who's going to be mayor of Manti? Jesus. Okay, who's going to be in charge of Philadelphia? The Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if it's a city of brotherly love, then no one more loving than our elder brother, Jesus Christ. But then the verse right after Isaiah 22, 22. This one's even more amazing. Verse 23, he says, I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Think about the significance of that phrase. A nail in a sure place. I mean, that's what we get stud finders for when we're going to go hang a picture or something on the wall, right? We want to find something that will hold underneath, not just rip through the drywall. And so Jesus being this nail in a sure place, he has the key of David. He can open and close. He can lock and unlock. He can seal and and loose. And you can hang all your hopes on him because he will hold. That nail is never coming out. And so for us to fully trust him, that's what the saints in Philadelphia are doing. Now he praises them for that. He says in verse 8 and 9, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. That is such a powerful passage. The door is open for you to enter the kingdom of God. Just come in. No one can close that. It's just a matter of you deciding whether or not you'll enter. If I have the key of David and I can, I can lock up your sin so they never come back to haunt you. I can open up the passage for you to return home. Please come. I've set before you that door. He then says, for thou hast a little strength. But despite that it's little, notice what they do. Thou hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Oh, there's another nod to the synagogue of Satan. People who are not truly covenant keepers in the house of Israel. People who missed the Messiah when he came. And here the Lord is telling these suffering saints, struggling there in Philadelphia, the day will come where they will, they will see the truth for what it is. They will worship before thy feet. They will know who was truly loved. Oh, you in the city of brotherly love itself. The Lord loves them. In fact, he loves them to the point of not needing to offer them any correction. They're a lot like Smyrna in that. Uh, you remember in Smyrna, nothing, nothing you need to work on. Just stay strong. Be faithful. That was the Nauvoo equivalent. Well, here's the Manti equivalent. And these cities of the saints doing their very best to live saintly lives, holding on to their testimony of Jesus. You you get a sense of that in verses 10 through 13, where the promises come forth. He says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, 
which is new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Oh, this city of the saints, pillars in the temple. Again, that reminds me of Manti. These people that just come and want a place and a name within the house of God. A name and a standing, never to leave. They don't have to. The Lord has left the door open and they can come in at any time. They can come where the Lord will write upon them his name. And not only his name, but the name of his holy city. You want to build the new Jerusalem? Then gather. Be temple pillars everywhere so we can construct more temples to the Most High. I am amazed at President Nelson's desire to dot the earth with temples. To make sure that more and more cities like Philadelphia can have a place where they can enter to be able to go no more out. That's the promise that the Lord is offering those to whom he gives his new name. Powerful. It leaves us with only one city left. And what a way to end, because this city is a rough one. It's the city of Laodicea, and it takes us from verse 14 through verse 22. We can label this one true riches, because the question is, will you hold to the true riches or fall for the false that's out there. Now, I take this one a little personally because I'm going to give the modern metaphor as Los Angeles, where I was raised. And to see the kind of oh, worldliness, again, we started with New York City, right, in Ephesus, and now we're ending with, La with Los Angeles in Laodicea. And whether it's one coast or the other, hey, the pulls and tugs of the world can be so seducing. In the ancient day, Laodicea lay at a junction of important trade highways. And as a result, it became an incredible center for commerce, for banking, for industry. It produced clothing, like we saw back in Sardis, uh, particularly linen and wool. Now, it also boasted a medical school that was world famous, uh, especially because it produced a certain kind of ointment for the eye that was exported all throughout the area. So there was, they would figured something out that this is supposed to help those that have difficulty seeing. Then again, despite all of this, these good things about Laodicea, setting itself up for worldly success, one of its struggles was its location. And the problem was it lacked sufficient fresh water to sustain itself. And so they had to pipe in water from a spring several miles away. But the problem is, by the time it went through the pipes, remember Romans were great at creating aqueducts and so on, but by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was no longer cool and fresh like it came out of the spring. It had gotten, well, it had been warmed a bit through the pipes. Uh, and now it's lukewarm water that is not as refreshing as it would be if you went back to the actual source. Okay? With all of that in mind, notice what the Lord is going to say to these saints in Laodicea. And yes, to all of, to all of those who know life in Los Angeles, big city, uh, so many tugs and pulls, so many things to distract you from the truth. How are we going to live our lives? Well, notice the introduction in verse 14. Unto the angel, or servant, of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And those were all things that we saw about the Lord back in Revelation 1 also. 
He is the faithful and true witness. He is the beginning as well as the end of all things. So, what praise will this great amen, this faithful witness, give to the saints in Laodicea? Well, that's the unfortunate reality. None at all. Smyrna and Philadelphia received no correction. Laodicea receives no praise. Something's not going well in that branch of the church. And the saints have been so pulled away by the world's influences that they're no longer holding to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the amen coming to the, he who began the creation. He who is the true witness. And what is he witnessing against them? How things they've got to do to change. That is what receives the bulk of this message. It's the correction that starts in verse 15. I know thy works, he says, that thou art neither cold nor hot. Sound like the water that's been piped in from outside? I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And those last three words would have been interesting for saints in Laodicea, since it's a place of wealth. Oh, but you're poor spiritually. It's a place where the eye salve is supposed to help you see, but you are blind spiritually. It's a place known for its clothing, its textile manufacture, and yet you are not clothed in wool or linen. You are naked before the all-seeing eye of God. There are things you need to repent of. It, so much of it has come because they're doing so well economically, but at the expense of their spiritual strength. They're rich. They're increased with goods. I don't have need of anything. I mean, I'm living in Beverly Hills. i got Hollywood right up the hill, and all's good here. And life in La La Land, there we're doing our thing, and I don't really have to put the gospel first in my life, do I? I mean, I can be a casual Christian, come to church every now and then, now and then, pay a, a token offering, you know, on the, the wealth that I'm amassing for myself. I'll be careful about that. That is lukewarm. It's not hot or cold. Some have even pushed back a, a little bit, or not pushed back, they've questioned. When I talk about proving contraries, uh, if we're both just and merciful, doesn't that make us hot and cold, which just leaves us lukewarm in the middle? And that's not the case. We're not trying to combine the two so that they cancel each other out. I'm trying to become more just so I can afford to be more merciful. I'm extending these things and balancing them both. I'm not trying to water it down into some mushy middle. It's not lukewarm spirituality that we're after. It's perfect justice and perfect mercy the way the Lord is. Great faith accompanied by great works. Okay? Uh, the interesting thing about cold or hot, and the fact that he doesn't care which, because either one will do something. If there's heat, it can do some things. If it's cold, it will do some other things. But when it's in the middle and it can't really do either option, and to picture those ancient day saints, they're not against the kingdom of God, but they're not really for it. 
They're just coasting along without real covenant commitment. And that's a problem. Compared, but what he said about Smyrna, I know you're poverty stricken, but really you are rich in the things that matter most. And then flip it around for the Laodiceans. You claim to be rich, like you don't need anything, but talk about poverty stricken in the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You need more than you realize. You need a call to repent, and I'm giving it to you. It continues in verse 18 and 19 with more correction. The Lord says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. And that's the kind of wealth that you should really be seeking. Okay, refined gold. Not only that, but also by white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You see how he's flipping everything that's so famous to their local culture? And your wealth, despite the fact you're poor? Well, change the poor back to wealth with gold refined in the fire. You are, take so much pride in your eye salve. Well, you're blind spiritually, but come to me and I will anoint you with, with true spiritual sight. And the naked, so proud of your, your outward apparel. Well, come and admit your nakedness as I rebuke you, as I chasten you. And once you repent, I will give you true clothing to wear. White raiment. As pure as the wool and snow used to describe the raiment of Jesus Christ. Come and be like me. It's possible, even there in Laodicea. Okay? I know a lot of incredible Los Angeles saints. To them, promises like these are forthcoming. Verse 20 to 22. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Such a famous passage. But to have him knocking, this is the one that we just met in the previous, the previous city, that he's got the, the key and he'll open the door for us and no one can ever close it. Well, I wish we would return the favor. Unfortunately, we do have a closed door policy toward Christ sometimes. Leaving him outside, standing there, knocking, unable to force his way in. Or unwilling, I should say. Do we hear him? Will we open? He just wants to come and feast with us. And he'll provide the bread of life and the living water. He then says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Oh, it's amazing to me to see what the Lord is offering us. To join him on his throne? We won't even let him in the house, and yet he lets us into the throne room. He has to stand out there knocking, hoping that we'll give him entrance, and yet he's let, he's let before us, or set before us, an open door. Just come. Even in places where worldly wealth 
and worldly perspectives. How's that for vision? And worldly costumes, trying to look a certain way, keep up with the latest fad or fashion. Oh, it will, it will so quickly fade. If we'll simply come unto Christ, we will receive all that he has to offer, including his own throne that he wants to share with us. Now, with the end of the message to the Laodiceans, we have now seen these many messages that John has given to each of the seven churches there in Asia Minor. And collectively, with all seven, the totality of the Christian church. Again, that, that numerical symbol. A quick review. Let me just uh, list them for you again so you can keep them in your mind. To Ephesus, there's our New York City, a message of first love. To Smyrna, our ancient Nauvoo, faithful in tribulation. To the city of Pergamos, the ancient equivalent of Boston, it's the true word of God. Thyatira, our ancient Las Vegas, there's purity preserved. Sardis, our equivalent for Salt Lake City. Saints in fact, not merely in name. To Philadelphia, or Manti as I would say, safe within. And to those of Los Angeles, that is Laodicea, have you obtained the true riches. Wherever we happen to be living, and whenever we happen to be living in these last days, I hope we've learned the lessons that John intended for the saints of his day, particularly so that we can inherit the blessings promised to those who overcome. You probably noticed this as we were going through one by one by one. But to collect all seven and put together the overcome statements and the promises granted to those who do overcome, did you catch the fact that they're all temple-related? Again, if we're in the temple to see the seven candlesticks, and we're about to see us going even further into the temple in chapter 4, imagine the blessings that are promised us if we can overcome the world and enter the house of God. Quick review. To Ephesus, the promise was the tree of life. That is God's presence. That's Eden. That's reversed fall. And that's what the endowment does. It brings us back into paradise where the tree of life is offering us the love of God in its fullness. To Smyrna, the promise was that they would not be hurt of the second death. And to think about the promise in the temple of eternal life, exaltation, eternal progression, it's all there. To Pergamos, they were promised the hidden manna, the white stone, the new name. And do you sense temple covenants and temple promises in all of that. To Thyatira, they were promised power over many kingdoms, ruling with a rod of iron. The morning star would be theirs. And to think about becoming kings and queens, priests and priestesses, to rule over the kingdoms of the world. There's, there's the promise of the temple. In Sardis, the promise was to be clothed in white raiment and have their names inscribed in the book of life. How do we dress in the temple? Where are we placing our names? Or to Philadelphia, this one's pretty obvious. 
The promise was that they would be a pillar in the temple. And again, they would receive a new name there. In fact, they would receive the Lord's new name. And finally, in Laodicea, the promise to those who overcome is to sit with Christ in his throne. And again, that's kings and queens and priests and priestesses. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ to come into his kingdom and belong there. Those are all promises the Lord makes to us when we enter his holy house. Now, in light of the last one about sitting on his throne, there's also so many elements of these promises that are, have coronation imagery. He is really trying to crown us. So the crown was promised to those in Smyrna and in Philadelphia, to Thyatira to rule over the kingdoms. Laodicea gets a throne. Pergamos and Philadelphia receive new names, and that, those were often given to kings as a coronation name. It, it's amazing how much is hidden here in plain sight in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 to help us see what our divine destiny is if we'll simply hold on to the truths that the Lord has given us, come what may. And what's coming? Well, the wicked world. That's why we've got to overcome it. To gather out the clues that John gave us in these two chapters, notice some of the things we have to overcome as elements of the wicked world all around us. The Nicolaitans, Balaam, Jezebel, persecution, Hellenization, which again is the fancy word for Greek philosophy, thinking about the wisdom of the world and how things are supposed to be done in that Greek age, or hypocrisy, or apathy. All of those things are elements of the world that must be avoided and overcome. And the promises are waiting for those who do. If you need to, go back and review what John has told us in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because if the world is too much with us, and if we're, too following, if we're following too much, too closely the ways of the world, then all of those magnificent promises are things that we are kissing goodbye. We've got to hold on to them. I love this quote from a man named Ronald Knox. He said that worldliness is not, in the last analysis, love of possessions or the habit of courting great personages. It is simply the weakness of fiber which makes us take our standards from the society around us. Interesting statement. Who gives us our marching orders? Who do we want to be like? Do we want to follow him that liveth and was dead and yet liveth forevermore? Do we want to be included in his kingdom? Do we want to take our standards from the faithful and true witness? The prince of the kings of the earth. I just want to follow Jesus. And I know that you do too. But that is going to require on our part a desire to overcome the world all around us. I've long been haunted by a statement from Dean L. Larson, former member of the Quorum of the Seventy who said, we see some evidences today of an inclination among our young people to follow the trends of the world. We do not always keep up with the pace setters, but in some ways we follow not too far behind them. Do you see what Elder Larson is warning us about there? 
it's not enough for us to say, well, I'm not as bad as the world, because are you as bad as the world used to be? Has the world lowered its standard? And we're still above the world, but have we been lowering our standards right along with it? We can still pat ourselves on the back and think that we're doing a good job, but how? Compared with where we used to be, and more importantly, compared with where the Lord needs us to be, how far we've fallen. The way Elder Packer has said it is that the distance between the world and a church not set on its course must steadily increase. If we hold to the Lord's standard and the world keeps going downhill, then the distance between us is going to get bigger and bigger. You thought we were a peculiar people already? You ain't seen nothing yet. But we have to hold firm to the faith. To me, there's great comfort in finding the companionship in tribulation of these amazing saints. And whether it's Sardis and Laodicea and Smyrna and Philadelphia, or whether it's New York and Las Vegas and Los Angeles and Salt Lake City, we have our work cut out for us to overcome the world. I know that through Christ we can. He has set before us an open door. And all we have to do is come unto him. The invitation of the Lord stands. Come. Door is open. Please enter. And we actually get the privilege of entering that open door in chapter 4. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 is where we'll finish this week's lesson. And it's, these two chapters are incredible. What, by the time we dive into chapter 6 next week, we get to meet the four horsemen of the apocalypse right off the bat. And we start to see the seals and the, and the open and the work of God throughout these different millennia of time. It starts to get intense next week, so brace yourself. But before we get there, we have two magnificent chapters that are meant to reassure us that we are truly in the hands of God and the hands of Christ. In fact, each one of those two people gets a chapter here. And chapter 4 is meant to introduce us to God. And then chapter 5 is meant to introduce us to Christ. And they do it in a way that is meant to leave us with a particular emotion. Now, that emotion is awe. And unfortunately, I don't know if we, if we understand that word well enough. Because it's been so watered down by becoming the word awesome. I joked with my students once when I was teaching this to them and said, uh, what, what word do we use for, or what words have been used in the past to describe something awesome? And they, or what's the new word? I mean, awesome was a word we used a ton in our day and when I was young, but the, you know, young people today, they talk, oh, it's lit. It's fire. I mean, go talk to your kids or your grandkids and it's amazing the slang that they come up with to, to create new words to replace words like awesome. But awesome itself was just a replacement of decades and even centuries worth of other slang to talk about something that was amazing in some way. I actually did some research and had some fun with this. Uh, how, how's this for a quick list? In the 1920s, a popular word for it was ducky. Oh, that's so ducky. Uh, or in the 1930s, the, the cat's pajamas and the bee's knees. Well, I've, heard, I've heard of those before. I didn't realize they were so old, 1930s. 1940s, it was hip. 1950s was cool. 60s was groovy, 70s was ace, or way decent, which is so fun. That's way decent, okay. Uh, or mind-blowing, which originally was supposed to describe the effects of hallucinogenic drugs. So yes, mind-blowing in literal ways. 
The 1980s included words like bodacious and fly and gnarly and wicked. <laughs> now it's getting closer to my day. The 90s, fat, but spelled with P-H. Do you remember that? That's, it's almost embarrassing to, to realize that we use words like that. The, the 2000s, it was sweet. And that's a word I, I still hear. But then I went back even further in time. And words like this have always existed. In the 1300s, they would use a phrase like thriven and through. Like, that is so thriven and through, dude. It's like, really? Okay. 1400s, gradely. The 1500s, jelly. Can you picture some, some Brit in the 1500s? Oh, such, such a jelly, jelly uh, outfit you're wearing, Your Majesty. Uh, or the 1600s, eximious. That sounds a little more uh, highfalutin, but that's it's supposed to mean awesome. The 1700s used words like top gallant and budgery. And the 1800s used words like boss. And that's kind of fun since we still use that sometimes in our day too. Now, all of those can be synonyms throughout time for a word like awesome. And yet awesome is so overused that it's lost most of its meaning. There's an interesting website called the Urban Dictionary. And when I looked up awesome there, <laughs> some of its funnier definitions, something Americans used to describe everything. Makes me wonder if the Urban Dictionary was written overseas. Uh, or another definition, the American adjective, a concept, object, or act whose worth lies somewhere between non-objectionable and life-changing. Its use in lieu of all other adjectives. For example, we defeated Hitler. Awesome. We have chips. Awesome. <laughs> you get the sense? It's like, wow, if it covers the entire spectrum, then it has lost its significance. It's lost its meaning. Or one other definition from the Urban Dictionary. Awesome is a word used by Americans to cover over the huge gaps in their vocabulary. It is one of the three words which make up most American sentences, the other two being a swear word and some form of taking the Lord's name in vain. Now, hopefully, as Latter-day Saints, we avoid the other two. But have we, have we sucked out the significance of the word awesome by applying it to everything? Especially when you realize that the root of awesome is awe. Something that is awe-inspiring. We've even messed with the word awful, because awful just seems like something that's the opposite of awesome. But to be awe-full, to be full of awe, something that invokes such deep feelings of wonder and admiration and respect, stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and feel some awe. Look into the night sky where there's no light pollution and get a sense of awe at how expansive the universe is and how tiny we are in comparison. And yet realizing that God loves us individually, that's awe-inspiring. That's awesome in the ultimate sense of the word. The reason I bring this up, and the reason I had this little exercise, this run through historical vocabulary with my students, is because I wanted them to know the goal of chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation. This cannot be merely an intellectual experience where we try to unlock some of the symbols and make sense of what is being shown here. No, it has to be an emotional one. It has to be a relational and experiential 
time in the scriptures where we come to see God in all of his glory and grandeur and, and stand in awe of who he is. In fact, not stand at all, just kneel to bow before him in wonder at our Heavenly Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. If you will pray for the Holy Ghost to enter our conversation in such a way that by the end of chapter, five, uh, chapter 4, you see God for who he really is. And by the end of chapter 5, you, are, you stand all amazed by the love Jesus offers you. Then we will have done our work correctly in these two chapters. And if by the end of 4 and 5, you don't feel those things toward God, then we need to go back and try harder to experience this in some way. In, we need to have the, the Moses experience. The thought that man is nothing is something I never had supposed. But now I'm supposing it. I'm getting it. Or the Enoch experience, thinking, thinking that he got it and then really coming to know God and being blown away to the point that his heart swelled wide as eternity. Well, for an experience like that, turn to chapter 4 of Revelation and begin in verse 1 where the revelation really begins. Up to this point, chapter 1 revealed Christ. And there he is with the stars in his right hand, standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. But then we took a pause in chapter 2 and 3 to aim these epistles at the seven churches there in Western Asia Minor. Now we're back to the revelation of things. And to put in perspective all that we'll see about the chaos of life in the last days, we need to know that God and Jesus Christ are there, present, in charge, hand on the helm, and everything will be okay as long as we turn to them. So chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Remember, Jesus sets before us an open door that no man can shut. Well, here this door opens in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. We saw the trumpet back in chapter 1. Here it returns in chapter 4. A very clear clarion call. It's often to give us warning. Remember that phrase back in 1 Corinthians 14? If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? Well, this one's going to be crystal clear. Okay? Here's the trumpet. It's talking. And it said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So this is going to be prophecy, things that are yet to come. But if you'll come to me, I'll show them to you. And that's why I've opened the door of heaven. Now, this is where we can go back to the idea of the, can the seven golden candlesticks, not as, seven, as sev seven separate ones, but as the seven branches of the menorah. Because if we picture that as the candlestick, then where are we? We're in the holy place in the temple. Think about all those promises that we just saw to those who overcome in chapter 2 and 3. All these temple blessings. Here I am, a nail in the shore place. Here I am, a pillar in the temple with a new name and with a rod of iron and with white raiment and sitting upon the throne of God. 
Ooh, if I'm going to enter the throne room, though, that's the holy of holies, not the holy place. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant had a lid called the mercy seat, also known as the throne of atonement. The covenant is the throne of Christ. And for us to come unto the covenant, we are entering the throne room. Now, to do that, though, we would have to pass the veil. We'd have to have that door, quote-unquote, opened so that we could enter the presence of God. Well, that seems like what is happening in chapter 4, verse 1, that we've already been out there in the holy place by the candlestick, and now the door is opened in heaven for us to enter the presence of God. Imagine what we'll see there. Well, look at verse 2. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So here we are in the Holy of Holies. The, the Lord, or, or the Father in this case, is sitting upon the throne of grace. He sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Now, remember what he said back in Revelation 3. If you'll overcome, I'll let you sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. It's an odd-looking throne. There seems to be room enough for everyone. But that's what at one mint does. It brings us all together into one. But if we'll sit there, come to the throne, and notice how he describes it. He that sat on it, looked like jasper and sardine stone. Now, what's all that about? For this, it, it's worth the effort to search elsewhere in Scripture for these kinds of precious stones. And one of the places that you'll see them is in Ezekiel chapter 28, and it's describing the Garden of Eden with those stones. It's also repeated later on in the book of Revelation as part of the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. And what I love about that is if you picture jasper and sardine stones present in Eden as well as in New Jerusalem, this is the first as well as the last. This is the original paradise and then the coming paradise that we are called upon to build. You get a sense that it's all coming full circle and God who inspired the first is, is the same God who inspires the second. We're just called upon to help him build it. Another place that you'll see these two stones is in Exodus chapter 28. And in Exodus 28, it describes the high priest's breastplate of judgment. We studied this one last year. And remember, there were 12 stones across it. Each one was a precious stone. And on it was inscribed a name of one of the tribes of Israel. It was a sense that the, pre the high priest would remember that the house of Israel that he bore responsibility for were meant to be over his heart. And they were precious stones in the sight of God. Well, the same is true here. But what's interesting about the, the names inscribed upon them, it's really fascinating because sardius, or in this case, sardine, it's the same kind of, it's the same stone, was the stone used to, to signify the, the tribe of Reuben, the first son of, of Jacob. And then the jasper stone was meant to represent Benjamin who was the last son of Jacob. So picture the entire family, start to finish, 
summed up by these bookends on the breastplate of judgment. And the sardine stone and the jasper stone meant in some ways to personify the entire family that, is, that the high priest has responsibility for. Well, here's God the Father, and his look is the look of a sardine stone and a jasper stone. And it, almost engraven in him is the precious stones of all of his children, his entire posterity. It's actually interesting, too, because there's connections to Christ here as well. Because what does Reuben mean in Hebrew? Behold a son. And what does Benjamin mean in Hebrew? The son of my right hand. And so picture the father bearing the image of the son, or vice versa. And this son of his right hand, there on the throne alongside him. Even the colors are fascinating. Because jasper, sometimes it's red, sometimes it's brown. It can be yellow, it can be green. There's a lot of possibilities. But jasper is typically clear white. So think about the purity of the the snow and the wool and now the jasper stone. And then the sardine stone is typically blood red. Uh, it's also known as the carnelian in, in geology today. But to think of purity alongside Christ's selfless sacrifice, the blood of the lamb that makes our garments spotless white. Remember he said that back in chapter 1, I have washed you in my blood. So to me, there's something powerful about picturing God upon his throne, symbolizing atonement, symbolizing the family, uh, all brought home to him because of his beloved son at his right hand. That's all, and again, that's all right there on the breastplate of judgment for the high priest of Israel. Back to Revelation, it also mentioned that there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And to think about rainbows, rainbows, if it's round about the throne, picture it as a crown of light. Rainbow is one of the most beautiful forms of light because it takes that beautiful purity of white and then spreads it out across the spectrum. And you start to see all these other colors. When we studied the tabernacle last year, we saw that taken as a whole, every color of the rainbow would be there visible somewhere. You get a sense of the same thing on the breastplate of judgment for the high priest. Now, you name the color and you'll, you'll find it somewhere. We also see the rainbow in the symbolism of the flood, as well as the symbolism of Zion. That not only was it an act of mercy on God's part to promise, I will never again destroy the earth with, with flood, this rainbow will be a reminder that even in the darkest storm, the light will eventually shine again and remind you of the love and mercy of God. But also in Enoch's case, just as Zion was caught up to heaven, so will it someday return from heaven. There's the full rainbow right there. It is a stairway to heaven, but it is a stairway of light. And it connects heaven and earth just like Zion is meant to. There's the throne of God. And if it also has the image of an emerald, emeralds are green. And green is a magnificent symbol for life. Picture a lush forest or jungle. Picture the tree of life 
with its leaves, bringing life to the nations. We'll see that at the end of the book of Revelation. Here we're seeing it at the beginning. That, by the way, emerald was also one of the stones used on the breastplate of judge, uh, the breastplate of judgment for the high priest. And you want to guess which tribe of Israel had its name inscribed upon the emerald stone? Well, we already saw Reuben, behold a son. We already saw Benjamin, son of my right hand. The emeralds represented the tribe of Judah. And that's Jesus. The scepter shall not pass from his hand. It will be, oh, a scepter of light in some ways. And Jesus and Judah meant to represent it. Well, that's verse 3. How about verse 4? And round about the throne, or JST, in the midst of the throne. And that seems really, really odd unless we understand that this throne is unlike any other. It's seats enough for everyone. He wants us to sit with him. And so in the midst of the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Again, go back to Revelation 3, and sit with me on my throne. We're seeing it happening. 24 elders. Now, in section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph was confused by this and wondered, what is that all about? Who are these people? And so he asks and gets an answer. We are to understand that these elders whom John saw were elders who had been faithful in the work of the ministry and were dead, who belonged to the seven churches and were then in the paradise of God. And so that's beautiful. In some ways, it makes it so personal for John. If he set up most of these churches, except for Ephesus, if he knows the people there, if he has oh, set Polycarp apart to help run the church in, in Smyrna, for example, if there's a personal connection, and now he's seen these elders, they made it. They overcame. They were able to navigate life in this wicked world and endure persecution and opposition, and they overcame. There they are sitting with him in his throne, as promised, wearing white raiment, as promised, crowns on their heads, as promised. God keeps his word. And it's all happening right there before us at the throne of God himself. Now, there's some other possibilities as far as symbolism is concerned that's really beautiful. Because there's a verse in 1 Chronicles, buried there in an obscure part of the Old Testament, that says that there were 24 divisions of the Aaronic priesthood that ministered at the temple. Like in the book of Luke, when it's Zechariah's turn to go minister at the temple, it was, he was one of those 24 courses of priests. And they would just rotate around. Everybody get about two weeks. And then you're off duty for the next year as it makes its rounds through the tribe of Levi. Well, to think about these elders, picture priesthood power here. And picture 24 seats to describe all the divisions of the priesthood. All in their proper order, their proper turn. But none greater than the other. All gathered together at one with God on his throne. And it's temple service that they've come to render. So yeah, we're here in the Holy of Holies with them. Another way to think about this as just a possibility is the number 24 means 12 twice. And so to take the 12 tribes of Israel, for example, 
and couple them with the 12 apostles, for example. And I'm just using examples here. That's the beauty of symbolism. It can have all kinds of possibilities. As long as they don't teach you things that you know are false from elsewhere in Scripture, then allow it as a possibility. In trying to make sense of symbols, often you'll know that you're wrong more than you'll have it completely confirmed that you're right. If somewhere else in Scripture says, nope, that's not the way it works, then forget about it. But if it, if it suggests possibilities that you do see elsewhere in Scripture and helps you deepen your appreciation and understanding of those possibilities, then run with it. And I love the thought of God bringing everyone home to Him, whether Old Testament tribes of Israel or New Testament apostles of the Lord. There's supposed to be an overlap or a, a repetition of that symbol in the 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They're all stones, precious stones on the breastplate of the high priest, right? They are all treasured and loved by the Lord. And to the point, I want you to sit here on the throne, right alongside me. So saints of any age or dispensation, there's room for you. Please come. He then says in verse 5, that out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, or the JST, the seven servants of God, that we met in each of the seven churches back in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now, think about this throne. What, it, what is it made of? It's the Ark of the Covenant. What's inside the ark? Well, the covenant is, the tablets of stone. Where did Moses get those? Ah, Mount Sinai. And if you were to describe the mountain of the Lord, with all of its temple symbolism, but the mountain of the Lord as far as, far as Sinai is concerned, how would you describe it when the covenant was being inscribed? Sound like lightnings and thunderings and voices? In some ways, what we're seeing in chapter 5 is an image of Mount Sinai all over again. Here we are in the temple, the throne room, heaven, Mount Sinai. Pick your symbol, whatever you choose. They're all basically the same. And it's a place of brilliant light and booming sound. How's that for the sound of rushing waters? These voices that that John is hearing in the presence of God. We'll see in a moment more of what those voices are saying. But there with the seven lamps of fire, a nod to the menorah that we just left, when we passed through the veil from the holy place to the holiest place, we're getting closer and closer to God here. To the point that in verse 6, we see that before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now it says that they were in the midst of the throne and round about. There's a JST that clarifies who's where. It says in the midst of the throne were the four and twenty elders. And round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Okay, so they're each in their spot. But to picture these beasts around the throne of God... And before the throne of God, this sea of glass like unto crystal. That was another one that caught Joseph Smith's attention. And he's like, okay, what do you mean by that? So, section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 1, he asked. And the Lord's answer, it is the earth 
in its sanctified, immortal, and eternal state. And to think about the earth when it receives its paradisiacal glory, when the earth becomes the celestial kingdom of God, to have it described there as a sea of glass like crystal. Now, I've had some people complain, like, well, no mountains? Are you kidding? Again, don't take everything so literally. If it's literal, it's going to be great water skiing. At least that's something. But this think about glass being so pure that you can see through it. In the Doctrine and Covenants also, this is section 130, it describes the earth in its sanctified state as a Urim and Thummim. So picture again, something clear whereby you can see all things, lights and perfections all coming through. This is the verse from section 130, verse 9. This earth in its sanctified and immortal state will be made like unto crystal and will be a Urim and Thummim to the inhabitants who dwell thereon whereby all things pertaining to an inferior kingdom or all kingdoms of a lower order will be manifest to those who dwell on it, and this earth will be Christ's. In some ways, it goes back to what we saw in the letter or the promises to those who overcome, that they'll be given a white stone. They'll be given a Urim and Thummim of their own so they can see and know as they are seen and as they are known. Well, imagine before the throne of God the whole earth like that. Imagine to see things so clearly, clear as crystal. The interesting thing about crystal, by the way, is it's not susceptible to change or to decay. And so this is the eternal kingdom of God. This is celestial glory right before his throne. And it's a place of knowledge, of vision, of sight, of clarity. And can you imagine coming into God's presence and him seeing right through you, but you not being ashamed of what he sees? You've been washed in the blood of the lamb. You're wearing white raiment. He's given you a crown on your head because you've overcome. And to see these incredible promises then, I think we have a lot to learn about each other, about ourselves, and most importantly, about God, before this earth becomes that kind of Urim and Thummim. But then what about these beasts? What, and especially that they're full of eyes before and behind. We're going to see more of that in just a moment. But Joseph asked about the beasts also in section 77, verse 2. And he was told that those are figurative expressions. Now, in his sermon in Nauvoo in 1843 that I referred to at the beginning of this week's lesson, he did talk about literal beasts in heaven as far as the animal kingdom that God has created and that God will exalt as well. And so that goes on. But to, to think of these figuratively as well, in terms of, so what do they represent? Because notice what these beasts are. Verse 7, the first beast was like a lion. And when we use words like like, we need to take this more figuratively, like section 77 tells us. Uh, but picture something that's along those lines, something like a lion. Second, the second beast was like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And back to DNC 77, verse 3, we're taught that those things represent the glory of the classes of beings in their destined order or sphere of creation in the enjoyment of their eternal felicity. 
Now, if they represent the glory of a class of being, if they're figurative expressions meant to help us picture something, if this is a symbol, I'm supposed to kind of peel away another layer of meaning. Well, take these four and what do you think about them? A lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. And it's interesting to think that the lion we often know or refer to as the king of beasts. Well, if it's a calf that grows up to be an ox, wouldn't that be the king of domesticated animals? Think about the work, the the beast of burden, the work that an ox can do. Think about man as the king of creation, given dominion over the animal kingdom back in the creation account. And the eagle, that could be considered the king of birds. So whether it's wild animals or domesticated animals or birds or just all creation, you are seeing a class of being in their order of, or in their sphere of creation, enjoying eternal felicity. Felicity is happiness. And so picture a smile on all of these animal faces, these beasts. But there they are surrounding the throne of God, almost as representatives of everything beneath them in their quote-unquote kingdoms. The the jungle will send the lion and the farm will send the ox. You understand what I'm saying here? And so picture all of them surrounding the throne of God. Now there's some other possibilities because in much of Christian history and Christian art, you'll see it in sculptures, you'll see it in stained glass windows, you'll see it in paintings and engravings. They take the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they compare them to these four beasts of the book of Revelation. And Matthew is the man where you see Christ as the son of David. Uh, Mark is the lion, is represented as the lion because Jesus is there to roar through the book of Mark. In Luke, you see Jesus, you see the book of Luke often described or personified or depicted, I should say, as an ox because Jesus is a gentle beast of burden in the book of Luke. It's a beautiful Christology. And then John, as we've said already, was the eagle with the soaring Christology of Jesus as Son of God. It it is interesting to see that there are ways to to depict Jesus Christ through all of these these beasts, these animals, as portrayed in the Gospels. But there's another element here as well that is fascinating. And so as another possibility for symbolic meaning here, if this is a temple scene, if this is the Holy of Holies, we're in the throne room of God. If it's already been likened to Mount Sinai, and you picture there in the wilderness, tabernacle at the center of Israel, and then tribes surrounding the tabernacle. And these 12 tribes, almost like the 12 spots on a, on a clock, surrounding it, all looking inward to keep God at the center of all that they did. Now, with 12, you can divide it into four, where there's a north, south, east, and west, and there is a tribe put at each of the four cardinal directions. And what's interesting about them is, according to many uh, Jewish depictions, where there is some kind of banner with an insignia representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. We already saw the 12 stones on the breastplate, and each one represents a different tribe. Well, to have an insignia or banner that shows them all, what's interesting is if you were to go directly east of the tabernacle, the tribe in charge of those three would be Judah. And Judah is depicted as a lion. If you were to go west, 
The main tribe to the west is the tribe of Ephraim, and it is depicted as an ox. If you were to go south, the tribe of Reuben is in center spot, and that is described as a man. Behold a son, remember. And to the north, you have the tribe of Dan that is depicted as an eagle. So just as a possibility here, one other way to envision this is this is a temple scene. This is a house of Israel scene. And God in his throne, in his temple there on Sinai, surrounded by the house of Israel and with this lion and ox and eagle and man, there's the house of Israel all surrounding him. Think about the leaders of that house from the tribe of Levi as the 24 elders. You have priesthood, you have people. This is the kingdom of God surrounding his throne. Next, you see in verse 8 that the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. We saw that earlier, right? When we first met them in verse 6, these four beasts were full of eyes before and behind. Picture someone having eyes behind, in the back of their head is how we say it. As if they are aware of everything. You can't sneak up on them. They see everything. This is as close as we can get to an all-seeing eye. Well, these are all-seeing eyes, okay? So, full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night. Now, what do they do day and night since they can't ever rest from doing it? They are saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. There's the past and the present and the future, just like we saw it repeated several times in chapter 1. So what are, the be what are these beasts doing? They're praising God without ceasing. There's that great word in Helaman 10 when Nephi is given the sealing power because he served God with such unwearyingness. Such a great word. Unwearyingness. That would be a good word to describe these beasts as well, especially if they represent the house of Israel. Here we are surrounding the temple of God, coming into his presence, and what are we doing all day, all night, without ever wanting to rest? We're praising our Father in heaven. He deserves it. He is holy, holy, holy. And he was and is and will forever be that holy. Now with that in mind, it makes the eyes and the wings all the more significant. Because these are strange look. I mean, I was following you pretty well when you just talked about lions and eagles and oxen and men. But full of eyes and then six wings. There's some fascinating artwork you can find online if you describe if you if you search for these kinds of images, and all kinds of artistic renderings that all seem a little strange. So again, John is writing symbolically. But what is what do these wings and eyes then symbolize? Notice in section 77, this is our go-to revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants to help us see some things in Revelation more clearly. In section 77, verse 4, Joseph asks about the eyes and the wings. I would too. And here's his answer. Their eyes are a representation of light and knowledge. That is, they are full of knowledge. And their wings are a representation of power to move, to act, etc. 
Now, that's that's pretty good. If you were to play, let's let's pretend we're playing Pictionary, shall we? And if I were to tell you to draw knowledge, how would you do that? Now, we might draw a brain because we know that's where the knowledge is stored, right? Uh, and yet, the eye would be a pretty good depiction too. Think about how much you know because you see things. You watch, you learn by example. It, it's amazing how much we learn through our sight. And so if we were going to try to symbolize light and knowledge, I mean, it's the eye that perceives light and therefore gains the knowledge related to it. And if we put those eyes everywhere, before or behind, all over, oh, is there a better way to depict omniscience? Picture these beasts knowing everything, having all knowledge, being open to all light. And since God himself is the light of the world, since he sits on this throne surrounded by a rainbow, which is this crown of light, if it's emerald green with light and life all coming together in these glorious symbols, then even these beasts partake of that divine omniscience. Now, if they're all-knowing, and that's the eyes, what about the wings? Did you catch what was said in section 77? It represents power to move, to act. Think about what we do with our feet. And I can move and I can act. I can go. I can go forward and back and side to side. But imagine if I had wings. I could go anywhere. I could go up and down, not just forward and back and side to side. And to have six wings, that is up, down, back, forth, front, back. I can move, I mean, three-dimensionally in both. That's take six right there and I can go anywhere I want. And if it represents the power to move and, the act, and to act, isn't that just another word for agency? Again, if we were playing Pictionary and I said, draw agency, oh, how would you do that? Well, six wings isn't, isn't a bad option. So now let's take all this symbolism together and try to understand what John is hoping to portray here. And what do you have? You have these creatures, these beasts, that are the highest of their class or kingdom. The king of beasts and so forth. Everything else that is like them is beneath them. And yet here they are. Here they are in all of their omniscience and all of their infinite agency. I'm the highest there is and I know everything and I can do anything. And what am I doing? I'm worshiping God the Father. I recognize how little I am. Forget king of beasts. He's the king of kings. And he alone is worthy of worship. Holy, holy, holy is he who was and is and is to come. I know everything. And the best use of my knowledge is to honor God. I can do anything. And the best use of my agency is to fall at his feet in humble adoration. Are you sensing any awe 
well up in you. Are you ready to kneel, to bow, to worship? Not to just give some kind of token acquiescence or acknowledgement that, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm a theist, I believe in God. No, have you experienced him? Have you accepted his invitation to come in? When the door in heaven opens and you see the lightning and you hear the thunder and you hear the voices and the sound of the trump and you're ready to join those 24 elders that are sitting with God on his throne. You're ready to climb the covenant to sit upon the mercy seat that lies above it, that covers the covenant including times we've broken it. There's something profound about this scene. And I hope it's a preview of scenes yet to come in our own lives. It certainly is an echo of what existed in pre-mortality. In fact, the way the chapter ends in verse 9 through 11, I want to be here for this too. When those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou, not us, Thou art worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. For thy pleasure. Can you picture God in his work and glory? Glory, finding pleasure in bringing to pass our immortality and eternal life. In making sure there's room on the throne for everyone. Get up here. All, all 24 elders and every, every station within the priesthood they're meant to represent. You beasts surrounding the throne of God, just come. Come home, come up, come unto me. I want you here. No wonder we offer him such honor and such thanks. No wonder all we want to give him is glory. Because it's glory he's trying to give to us. Instead of it being tug of war where I want it and he, no, he wants it, it becomes hot potato. And he's trying to give it to us, but we're trying to give it to him. Notice what happened with the crowns. Remember to him that overcometh, I will give them a crown. And these 24 elders were given crowns of gold. And yet what are they doing? It's like, that's like they asked themselves that question. What am I doing wearing this thing? I have no right to the throne. Only God does. And so to take off that throne, to undecoronate, is that even a word? <laughs> to remove it and then to cast the crown before the throne of God. There's a wonderful Christian band that is called Casting Crowns. And that's where they get their, their title, their name. All the, they, they are not in it for their own glory. All they want to do is glorify God. And that's the message and meaning of Revelation chapter 4. If we read it right, 
if we allow the Holy Ghost to open the eyes of our understanding, then our hearts will be moved to do likewise. To kneel before his throne. And any crown he offers us, we return to him. Thou art holy. And thine be the glory forever. Now, if we feel that towards the Father in chapter 4, I pray chapter 5 will help us feel the same thing about the Son. They're together on the throne after all, right? They're, they're making room for all of us through the atonement of Jesus Christ. But what if he hadn't been able to do that? What was riding on his willingness and ability to atone for all of us if it was only through his blood that our clothes could be washed white? Well, turn with me to chapter 5 and pray for another celestial experience. In verse 1, And I saw in the right hand, and there's that covenant hand again, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now, if it's written on the inside and on the outside, there must be a lot to write there. You've got to print double-sided. I'm trying to squeeze in as, much wor as many words as I possibly can into this document. And it's sealed with seven seals. Now, in the ancient world, when a king would write a document and then roll it up or fold it up and then put some wax on it and then with their seal, their insignia, they would stamp it. It was only intended for someone that had the right to open the seal of the king. It was addressed to someone of incredible authority or importance. And this one, oh, it's sealed with seven seals. Who on earth could that possibly be addressed to? Well, we're about to see. Now, Joseph Smith had questions about this verse as well. And so in section 77, verses 6 and 7, he's asking, what's up with the seal? Or I should say the book with the seven seals. You could picture a scroll, a book, whatever you want, but what, is it, what does it represent? And the answer, we are to understand that it contains the revealed will, mysteries, and the works of God, the hidden things of his economy concerning this earth during the 7,000 years of its continuance or its temporal existence. In essence, we get a seal for each thousand years. And though geologic time is different than scriptural time, to see from Adam that if you'd follow the genealogies in the book of Genesis and elsewhere in the Old Testament, that was about 4,000 B.C. So you have 4,000 years until the coming of Christ, and there he comes at the, the dispensation of the meridian of times, a midpoint, a high point. And then you get 2,000 more years until we get to our time period. And in this age of the restoration, when the Father's work really gets underway to prepare the world to usher in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So we have the 4,000 years before Christ, 2,000 after, we're now at six, and then a seventh thousand years, which entails the millennium. Again, it seems fitting that the seventh day would be a day of rest, millennial reign. And it seems fitting that after Jesus was here and then died, there would be two more days pass and that he would return on the third day. Again, a thousand years as a day. We saw that in the book of Peter. Now, there's some beautiful symbolism here, too. 
In fact, Elder Orson F. Whitney of the Quorum of the Twelve years ago said it this way, The book which John saw represented the real history of the world, what the eye of God has seen, what the recording angel has written, and the 7,000 years corresponding to the seven seals of the apocalyptic volume are as seven great days during which Mother Earth will fulfill her mortal mission, laboring six days and resting upon the seventh, her period of sanctification. And we saw that in the book of Moses, in chapter 7, where Enoch is having his visions of the earth itself finally being cleansed during the millennial reign. Okay? Now, so what, in, in some ways, what's happening here is picture, well, picture this. When I got my mission call, I was a student at BYU, a freshman living in the dorms, and this was before they sent them out via email. They'd send them in a big envelope, and they'd all were coming to Helaman Halls, where so many freshmen lived, and so many freshmen were waiting for mission calls. And the wonderful workers there at the post office at the dorms would tape some helium balloons to them and set them out and call you and say, your mission call's here, and you'd sprint down there and grab this thing. It had your name on it, and mine said Elder Jared M. Halverson. And I thought, whoa, I've never been called Elder Halverson before. Uh, and it was kind of surreal to realize that two years of my life were waiting for me in this envelope. It was addressed to me. I was the one that was supposed to open it and accept the mission call inside. Now, later in the book of Revelation, we'll see something similar given to John himself. And it's a, a scroll, a book, and he's supposed to open it. In fact, he's supposed to eat it. We'll get there uh, next week. But it's his mission call. And what's interesting here is picture this book with the seven seals as the Savior's mission call. And only he who could open all seven and perform the Father's work and glory through all the 7,000 years of the earth's temporal existence, who's going to be able to do that? Who has the right authority to open this book? That is the question. In some ways, what Revelation 5 is, it's the long version of the council in heaven. In the book of Abraham, it simply has the father asking, whom shall I send? And the Savior raises his hand and says, here am I, send me. And then Satan, Lucifer, says, here am I, send me. And the father says, I will send the first. And that's it. And it seems pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And, and God, the father, chose Jesus as the son. Great. Well, it was so much more dramatic than that. And Revelation 5 helps introduce some of that drama to the scene. It wasn't as simple as any, any takers, any volunteers, and Jesus saying, sure, I'm willing to do it. Let's slow it down and see how it's described here. Revelation 5, verse 2 and 3. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? In other words, he's asking, who can perform the mission of Messiah? Now, notice the difference. What's the adjective describing the angel? He's strong. But what's the adjective that strong angel is looking for? Worthy. It's not strength that is going to force open the seals. It's not strength that's going to push someone through Gethsemane. No, it's worthiness. It is perfect purity. Because any sin would disqualify him from becoming a sinless sacrifice. 
So that is the question. Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals? Who's worthy to perform the Savior's saving work? And here's where the drama really begins. It wasn't an immediate hand going up, here am I, send me. No. Verse 3, And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, sounds like they looked everywhere, but no man was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. They couldn't even bring themselves to look at it because the mission call was impossible. Do you remember earlier this year when we studied Luke chapter 3 and there was a JST there that takes us to the appendix because the, the, the addition was too long to fit in the footnotes. It, to me, is one of the most powerful Joseph Smith translation additions anywhere in Scripture, and it's Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. I call it the Ten Commandments for Christ. And what it is, is a description of the Savior's mission call. The way he walks you through the ten different things, there just happen to be ten things that the Messiah would have to be able to do in order to save humanity. And compared to his Ten Commandments, ours are a piece of cake. Don't kill someone, don't steal their stuff. Well, how's this? How's that compared to what the Savior is being asked to do? Here's, here's the description. For behold and lo, he shall come. As it is written in the book of the prophets, and then here's the ten things he's going to have to be able to do. Number one, to take away the sins of the world. And remember, to do that, you can't have committed any yourself. That's why... He has to be worthy, not merely strong. Number two, and to bring salvation unto the heathen nations. Everybody has to have a chance. Even those on the outside have to be brought in. Number three, to gather together those who are lost, who are of the sheepfold of Israel, yea, even the dispersed and afflicted. Who's going to be able to gather all of Israel, find every last lost sheep? Or four, and also to prepare the way and make possible the preaching of the gospel unto the Gentiles. Oh, to go from exclusivity to radical inclusivity? Who's going to be able to pull that off? Number five, and to be a light unto all who sit in darkness unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Who will be able to shine that brilliantly to illuminate every place of darkness? Number six, to bring to pass the resurrection from the dead, which means you'll have to die and then conquer death in the process. Or number seven, to ascend up on high, to dwell on the right hand of the Father until the fullness of time and the law and the testimony shall be sealed and the keys of the kingdom shall be delivered up again unto the Father. Yeah, who's going to be able to pull that off? To overcome all things, to ascend to God, having the keys ready to deliver, the keys of the, the, keys of the kingdom, the key of David, to open and no man shut, to shut and no man open. How about the eighth commandment for Christ? To administer justice unto all. How on earth could anyone do that without selling anyone short? And justice to one meaning injustice to another. No, complete justice for everyone. That alone would require omniscience. How about number nine? To come down in judgment upon all. You're going to have to be the judge of quick and dead. You're going to have to know what's right to do for everyone, regardless of circumstance. And then finally, number 10, 
to convince all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed, and all this in the day that he shall come. Oh, who on earth, or above the earth, or under the earth for that matter, who in heaven, who in all of creation will be able to do that? And no wonder we wept when no one seemed qualified. That's what he says in verse 4. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Again, we can't even take a glimpse, take a peek at it. It's too intimidating. I've sometimes joked with my younger students, imagine reading the newspaper in pre-mortality. You open the sports section and read about the saints and the angels. Those are the only two teams that play up there. Uh, then you open the want ads because you're curious what your role on earth will be. And you'll see positions needed. And so it'll say help wanted. And it'll describe someone like, oh, help wanted, teacher needed. And I volunteered for that. I'd love, that sounds like a family business to me. Let, let me dive in. Uh, imagine one in bigger font saying, help needed, a precious vessel, a handmaid of the Lord, who will become the mother of the Son of God according to the flesh. Wow. Who on earth could do that? And thankfully, Mary was worthy of that honor. Think of everyone who's ever lived and performed work for God on earth. And they responded to some want ad in pre-mortality, if we're following the analogy. Well, if that's the case, imagine a full page spread that didn't just say help wanted, it said help required. In fact, in the fine print that wasn't so fine, it said a big and blazoned across the headlines. If this position is filled, then no other position matters. Because the help that was required was the help of a savior. Someone would have to be worthy to open the book with the seven seals and perform all of God's saving work throughout the earth's history. And no one was able to do it. Not until one holy hand was raised with Jehovah saying to Elohim, Here am I. Send me. I will do all that thou hast commanded, and thine be the glory. He's casting his crown too. I will keep all ten commandments of the Christ, and therefore I will become the Christ for everyone's sake. Do you get a sense of desperation on our part? when no hand was held up, when no volunteers were forthcoming, and we wondered, I can't even look at that book, let alone unseal it. There's no way I can accept that mission call. Is there anyone on earth or heaven that could? And Jesus can. No wonder the strong angel finally stops our tears with this language in verse 5. In fact, it's not even the angel. It says that one of the elders, one of those 24 there kneeling before the, the throne, 
one of the elders saith unto me, weep not. <laughs> you can picture us responding, well, why? What's the solution? If no one can open the book, no one can perform that mission. Well, the elder would say, someone can. His response, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Oh, there, there he is in all his emerald green glory. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. He prevailed. He conquered this mission call. He's able to perform all the saving work. Wow, oh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Do you remember back in Genesis 49 when each of the tribes of Israel was given a patriarchal blessing of sorts? And when Jacob laid his hands on his son Judah, he said that Judah is a lion's whelp. And ever after, the lion was associated with that tribe. It's the leadership tribe, the kingly tribe. Picture David and Solomon and the Davidic dynasty of whom Jesus Christ would be heir. To think about the root of David. Remember that from Isaiah chapter 11? That even though it's a stump that apostate Israel has left behind, there will be a root or a shoot that grows out of the roots. It will bring forth new life, and that's what Jesus would do for the house of Israel. To me, there's something profound about this title and the reassurance it would give us. Who on earth or heaven would be able to perform this work and to know that there's a lion out there who can roar down sin and death and save us all in the process. No wonder C.S. Lewis was so inspired to create of his Christ character in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the lion. Such a fitting depiction of Jesus Christ. And yet, verse 6 comes as a, surprise, as a surprise then. Because can you picture all of us wiping our eyes and trying to see through our, our tears? And, and where is this lion of the tribe of Judah that everyone's, everyone was hanging their hopes on? Remember, if he doesn't perform his mission, then none of our missions matter. Who is this? And in verse 6, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, not a lion, a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Or as the JST clarifies, and increases the number, having 12 horns and 12 eyes, which are the 12 servants of God sent forth upon all the earth. So there you have the 12 apostles or the 12 tribes of Israel, all the house of Israel that God is trying to bring home. Here's this interesting looking lamb. A lamb with horns and eyes all over. Again, if eyes help represent knowledge, he knows everything. In fact, he knows everyone. Every last tribe of Israel. Every last member of it. No wonder as a lamb, he came to, place, to take our place personally. The condescension was a personal thing for him. A relational thing. The horns seems to be more of a ram than a lamb, but a ram caught in the thicket so that every Isaac could go free. And for these horns, think about 
horns as a symbol of power, authority. The oxen using his horns to herd the rest of the family home. That we saw in the patriarchal blessing of the tribe of Ephraim. But to see a lamb when you expect the lion, that to me is profound. It's one of my favorite contraries of Christ. We know him as God and man. There's a condescending contrary. But to see him as lion and lamb. When we speak of the millennium as the lion and lamb lying down together, well, of course they can. <laughs> they are all one in Christ. And to have someone who can roar down sin and death, like I said, but at the same time be so gentle and meek as to be approachable to sinners like you and me. There are times I need the lion and times I need the lamb. And I'm grateful that Jesus is both of them. It actually reminds me of what we studied a couple of weeks ago in Peter when he described Jesus as the lamb without blemish prepared from before the foundation of the world. There's that sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. And when we saw the lamb here, we, he stood as if he had been slain already. There's atonement preceding creation, let alone fall. That was the plan from the very beginning. And the son volunteered. And the father accepted. This is, this is the, not the war in heaven yet. We'll get there in chapter 12. But this is the premortal council. And again, do you sense how dramatic it is compared to the Cliff Notes version we get in the book of Abraham? This is as profound as it gets. And how do we respond? If we responded with tears when we realized that no one's going to be able to do this, and then we finally saw that someone actually was, he, he conquered this, he prevailed to accept this mission call. We knew he'd be able to perform it. Now what's our other reaction? If we were so far in the extreme of devastated sorrow, then how are we supposed to respond once we realize what Jesus is able to do? Look at verse 7 and 8. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. How's that for a passing of the baton? How's that for the covenant right hand of the Father passing this mission call to the covenant right hand of the Son? Will you do this? And of course he will. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. Now notice the language here. He came and took the book. It wasn't forced upon him. Christ willingly offered himself as that lamb. He took upon him sin, took upon him death. He asked for it all. Give me the book, Father. I accept it. I will perform thy work and thine be the glory. And yet we wanted to give so much glory to the Son as well. That's why beasts and elders, those who had been casting crowns before the Father, are now lying prostrate before the Son. With harps, how's that for songs of joy and praise? We'll get to hear some of that music in just a moment. And then golden vials full of, or, of odors. Other translations speak of bowls full of incense. And to think about, again, if we're back in the temple, the tabernacle, the last thing we pass before entering the presence of God, 
right before the veil is parted. And remember at the crucifixion of Christ, it was torn apart so that we could come boldly before the throne of grace. But right before the altar was, excuse me, right before the, the veil was an altar of incense, representing the prayers of the saints ascending to heaven and filling the tabernacle with a sweet savor. That's what we see here. Yes, this is a temple scene. And because the Son is willing to, to sit on the throne alongside the Father, we cast our crowns to them both. We sing songs of praise and joy. We offer our incense. What do your prayers smell like? And are they giving a sweet savor to the Father and the Son who are worthy of all our adoration. In verse 9 and 10, we hear the song. They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy. Remember, that was the qualifying adjective we saw from the beginning of this chapter. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. There's the atonement. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, there's God as no respecter of persons and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. There's joining Jesus for the millennial reign. Now, those two verses, 9 and 10, are the first stanza and it is sung close to the throne, right around it. The four beasts, 24 elders, they are the ones singing this first verse of the song. It reminds me of the, verse of this, the verses of the song that Eliza R. Snow wrote in How Great the Wisdom and the Love. Listen to verse 1 and verse 6. How great the wisdom and the love that filled the courts on high and sent the Savior from above to suffer, bleed, and die. How great how glorious, how complete, redemption's grand design, where justice, love, and mercy meet in harmony divine. I can only imagine what the harmony would be when lions and calves and eagles and men are singing praises to Jesus Christ. I can only imagine the 24 elders harmonizing beautifully. But to picture them right around the throne of God, singing, Thou art worthy. You've redeemed us, and all praise is thine. Now that was only the first verse. and the first round, it ends up being concentric circles spreading outward until it encompasses all of creation. And so the second round, the second stanza, look at verse 11 and 12. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy of what? Worthy to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Can you picture an innumerable company of angels 
Remember, 10,000 was just the biggest word that the Greeks came up with for, as far as numbers are concerned. We'd have to be more creative. We talk about millions and then billions and then trillions. And at some point we start making up words like gazillions. But to think of an innumerable host praising the Lamb of God for his worthiness. And then finally, a third stanza. This next concentric ring, it doesn't need to go anything beyond, any further beyond this because this now encompasses all creation. In verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Can you picture all of creation joining in to these praises for the Father and the Son? That's a song I hope we all can sing. I don't know if we learn the lyrics from someone else or if they simply rise up within. How can I keep from singing? In some ways, this reminds me of section 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants. When Joseph Smith is in hiding, up in an attic somewhere, he can't even stand up straight, and yet he wants to sing. He wants to shout from the rooftop and let people know of the glory of the God he serves. This is section 128, verse 23. Let the mountains shout for joy. And all ye valleys cry aloud, and all ye seas and dry lands tell the wonders of your eternal King. And ye rivers and brooks and rills flow down with gladness. Let the woods and all the trees of the field praise the Lord. And ye solid rocks weep for joy. And let the sun, moon, and the morning stars sing together, and let all the sons of God shout for joy. And let the eternal creations declare his name forever and ever. All the sons and daughters of God shouting for joy. All of creation itself singing praises to her king. And he deserves it. He deserves it and infinitely more from each of us because of all that he's done for our sake. No wonder, verse 14, this, this scene can close in this way. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. It spread out. It's now come back in. All creation. Praising the creator of it all. I pray that the Holy Ghost helped us feel something in Revelation 4 and 5. I hope it gave us a sense of awe and wonder. If it hasn't, can I invite you to do two things that might help? Because the fact that this came out in song should tell us something. There are times that prose is not enough, we have to do poetry. And times where even poetry is insufficient and we have to add music to infuse those words with feeling, with life. Oh, so here's two songs. I'll, I'll 
I'll describe them here or name them, and then I'll put links in the, in the description so that you can find them yourself. The first is called simply Alleluia. It's hallelujah without the H, okay? It's just another way of spelling it. It was written by a, an Italian composer, I believe, and the Tabernacle Choir performed an arrangement of that song by Mac Wilberg. And it consists of a single word repeated over and over and over again. And that word is Alleluia, which means praise to the Lord. That's what the beasts were singing. what the 24 elders were singing. It's what the, the myriad angels were singing. It's what all creation was singing. And together, all creation was praising its king. Listen to that song. And as it builds, the sense of praise and gratitude and honor and worship will grow within you as well. It's an absolute masterpiece. And then the second one, it's hard for me to decide which I love better. But the second is a, a song of much more recent composition, written by a, a composer that recently came to BYU. He's not a member of our church, but he's a man of God named Dan Forrest. And he wrote a song called, And Can It Be? And he's just asking this question in in awe-filled disbelief. Like, is it even possible that the Son could love me enough to die for me? That this lamb could stand as one slain? That this lion could roar my enemy's sin and death into complete subjection? That he would open a door before me at, that no one can close? And can it be? It was performed incredibly by the com combined choirs at BYU-Idaho. And it's on YouTube as well, and it's, it's breathtaking. I think it does justice to the feeling that is being described in Revelation chapter 5. So go listen to those whenever you want to join the chorus and feel worship for the Father and the Son. Now before we close, I want us to remember these two chapters for everything we're going to see next week and the week after because things are about to get intense in the book of Revelation. And the kinds of last days, Armageddon kinds of experiences that await us, we have to approach them with echoes from premortality, willing us forward with faith. I actually love the way Mike Wilcox described this moment in his book, writing, with the joy of song in our hearts, we are now ready to open the book and view the great battle with the dragon as it unfolds from seal to seal. Yet behind all the horrific scenes of lion-toothed locusts, falling stars, and images built to the honor of devouring beasts, we hear the never-fading echoes of the new song, instilling its whispers of ultimate peace and glory. And that's what we'll need moving forward. This is the reassurance of a God in heaven and a condescending Christ who is willing to take our sins upon him. That's the song that will carry us through Armageddon and on to Adam on Diamond. Now, if we can just spend a few minutes reviewing some of the incredible passages that we've studied these last five chapters, 
just by way of review, to cement them into our souls. Here's but a few worth remembering. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. Unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. His voice as the sound of many waters. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Do the first works. He that hath an ear, let him hear. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. That which ye have already, hold fast till I come. I will give him the morning star. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain. I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Buy of me gold tried in the fire. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. I stand at the door and knock. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. The four and twenty elders fall down before him and cast their crowns before the throne. Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book. In the midst of the throne stood a lamb as it had been slain. And they sung a new song. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. My dear friends, will you sing that song with me? Can we be part of that third stanza that encompasses all creation until it rises up naturally from within that we cannot keep from singing that song of redeeming love? If you've ever felt to sing it before, can you feel so now? Can we come to know Christ? Can we do the first works to return to our first love and honor him who loved us enough to lay down his life? I bear my witness of the Father and the Son. I stand in awe of them.
and pray that my life may be some small indication of my feelings of gratitude and of worship. The Father and the Son are worthy of all of that and so much more. So may we give it to them with all our hearts, all our mights, all our mind, and all our strength.